When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello to all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints out there. I'm Jared Halverson. Welcome back to class. Uh, today we're going to be covering a lot of material in the book of Deuteronomy. But before we get in there, can I just express one more time how much I love you and how grateful I am for you. Honestly, I pray for you. I pray for your families and I know you do the same for me. And I feel that and I'm grateful for it. I actually feel guilty sometimes that I get to have the best imaginable conversation partners when it comes to scripture study. I'm friends with most of the people that run other uh, Come Follow Me channels, and, and we compare notes sometimes. We each have different approaches and backgrounds and gifts that we hope to bring to the table. And our hope is just that people will find teachers that they can resonate with and learn from. And, but I do realize that I kind of get the cream of the crop because the sheer length of these lessons scares away the faint of heart. Uh, I've probably even been pushing my luck with you the last couple of weeks as we've gone through Leviticus and Numbers. But because we're at a stage where we have to teach a book a week, basically, and since we're, in the, we're used to studying as much as we can and trying to at least find some, something valuable and relevant in just about every chapter, that does make for extremely long lessons. They'll start slowing down after today. And so thank you for enduring it well. Uh, but once we get to Joshua next week and Judges and on from there, the books of Scripture tend to be a little shorter, or at least we get more than a day to cover the entire thing. Uh, so if you have endured, if you've survived Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, my hat's off to you. And once again, uh, kudos to all of you. It's interesting. A lot of people want to spend time in Scripture every week, and that's awesome. Uh, you seem to be the type that actually want to truly study your Scriptures. Uh, and understand as much as we possibly can from everything that God has given us. And so uh, today we get to do that in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, I'm kind of looking forward to getting this one behind me because I've had this song in my head all week. Uh, remember the old primary song? Genealogy, I am doing it. Well, it's been Deuteronomy, I am doing it. My Deuteronomy. Uh, but the next line, and the reasons why I'm doing it are very clear to see. That might be true of genealogy. I don't think it's true of Deuteronomy. Uh, is it clear to us why we should be studying this book? It's the last of the five books of Moses. Uh, the Torah, if you're Hebrew. The Pentateuch, if you speak Greek. Uh, but in some ways, this makes this book Moses' last lecture, his final sermon. And if you ever want to know what means something to an author, look at what they say last. To do that in the Book of Mormon with, with Lehi's final messages to his sons, or Nephi's final chapters at the end of 2 Nephi, to see what Abinadi teaches last, or Samuel the Lamanite, or Mormon, or Moroni. Moroni gets three tries, by the way. <laughs> three different attempts to finish the Book of Mormon. And they're all amazing. Each one gets better than the last, in my opinion. But to see what Moses is doing here, to convey his final message to a group of people that he has spent the last 40 years trying to lead into the Promised Land. Uh, will they finally get there with this next generation? 
to see the book of Deuteronomy for what it is, uh, by way of introduction, let me, let me sum it up this way, to make it as clear to see as possible. The book of Deuteronomy can be boiled down to a single statement, and that would be, keep the commandments. Well, there, I guess we're done. We can wrap it up early this week. No, actually, it's worth a lot more than that. But keeping the commandments really is the focal point. Actually, as I ponder that, it hit me, keeping the commandments is maybe one of three. Because together with that reminder that runs throughout the book of Deuteronomy to obey the commandments of God is also a sense of remembering him. Several times they are reminded, you can't forget God as you enter the promised land now. And there's another one that, we, that grew out of that uh, statement in Exodus about becoming God's peculiar treasure, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's, are you truly ready, readier than your parents were, to be my people and to have me to be your God? In other words, are you ready to and are you willing to fully take my name upon you? Now, do those three reminders sound familiar? To be willing to take upon us the name of God, to be willing to keep his commandments and to always remember him. It, it kind of is mind-blowing to realize that what Moses is giving us in this final book of scripture of his is the sacrament prayer, the sacrament promise, and just this reminder of what it is that is being asked of us to truly come home to our Father in heaven. There's power in this incredible book. In some ways, it will feel redundant based on what we studied in the book of Exodus. Exodus is God's first attempt at giving Israel the law. Well, they didn't live it very well. And so here in Deuteronomy, in fact, the name, the title itself, Deuteronomy, Deutero means second, and nom is law. So this is the second law. Yes, it's a repeat of the first law we saw in Exodus, but to give them a second chance at truly internalizing it. Uh, there's going to be some slight differences, but what's interesting to me more than, more than just a repetition is an emphasis on, well, I'll put it this way. Exodus and, and Numbers are historical books. Exodus gets them from Egypt to Sinai, and Numbers gets them from Sinai to the banks of the Jordan River. Caught in between that is Leviticus, which is a priesthood handbook. And then at the end is Deuteronomy, which in some ways is a judicial handbook. Leviticus is going to tell the priests how to offer all the sacrifices and perform the rituals and so on. Deuteronomy is going to teach the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel how to live according to the law of God. As far as Exodus and Numbers being historical and Leviticus being, well, Levitical, <laughs> priestly, Deuteronomy in some ways is the rhetorical because it's more than just explaining law. It's amazing to watch God trying to persuade them to live it. As one who studies rhetoric myself, it's the power of persuasion. Aristotle defines it as making use of all the available means of persuasion. And I see that in the book of Deuteronomy. Not enough to just say, okay, here's the law, go keep it. That didn't work. Rather, how can I convince my people? How can I persuade them to want to keep my commandments. I hope that by the end of our study this week, we've had a bit of a paradigm shift as far as the commandments of God are concerned. And that as God appeals to so many parts of us, from low natural man to high spiritual man or woman of God, I hope something resonates and we realize that 
God's commandments are not restrictive. They're meant to liberate us and prepare us for life at home with him. And so I pray that the Holy Ghost will help us navigate the book of Deuteronomy so that its message does become clear to us and one that we clearly want to keep. Well, it begins with a history lesson of sorts. And so let's look back before we begin moving forward. The first three chapters of Deuteronomy uh, is this review of everything we saw in the historical uh, books before, Exodus and, and Numbers. But notice how it all begins. Deuteronomy 1 verse 1. These be the words. That's actually how the, this book is titled in, in Hebrew. Uh, Debarim. These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea. Verse 3 tells us that it was the 40th year, the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. So I'm going to give you the whole thing. It's all here. Verse 5 tells us, On this side Jordan, in the land of Moab, began Moses to declare this law, saying, but like I said, he's not going to say the law quite yet. Wait for chapter 4 for that. First will come this history lesson, a review of their journey. Actually, law typically does grow out of our past. How we live our present, how we, how we move into our future, does grow out of what we've been learning through our past experience. The, the, the social contract, so to speak, that... As we live life in community, we, well, we rub, off, rub off some rough edges as we, as we engage with one another. There's some friction there. And as a result, we learn how to better get along. And so to see this review is hopefully going to help Israel realize why the commandments of God are so essential to them. As I read it, there seem to be about five lessons that God tries to get across in these first three chapters. The first one helps them get a sense of a spirit of urgency that God is feeling, and he wants them to feel as well. He's a little bit tired of the 40 years of wander, wander, die, wander, die. And so he says in verse 6, The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb, that's Sinai, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in this mount. Turn you, take your journey. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land, which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give unto them and to their seed after them. Do you have any idea how long it's been since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And God, yes, is eternal. And yes, he's patient. But there's also a sense of urgency here that I see him almost saying to Israel, are you guys as sick of this place as I am? Uh, it's been a nice resting spot, but it's not our final destination. So let's get up and get going. You've been here long enough. He says a similar thing in the next chapter. The way chapter 2 begins, Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So they did pick up and keep moving. It said, we, can't, we compassed Mount Seir many days, and the Lord spake unto me, saying, Ye have compassed this mountain long enough. Turn you northward. You see the parallel, at the beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2? Two mountains, Mount uh, Sinai and Mount Seir, and both times the Lord is getting a little antsy to get moving forward. How long do you plan on staying? The land is before you. Go forward and have the faith to conquer it. To me, it's interesting to see, the Book of Mormon is a good place for this. When you see the brother of Jared, for example, chewed out by the Lord for three hours, wow, you thought old church was long. How about a three-hour tongue lashing? In that case, what brought it on? Well, 
the Lord had said, it's, you've been here long enough, Mahanrai. Let's move forward. Uh, the Tower of Babel is far in your rearview mirror, and you've gotten to the beach. I was a Southern Californian by birth. Uh, I can understand why the beach might be a fun place to hang out for a while, but it was too long a while. And so it, it's time to build these barges, make them tight like unto a dish, and cross the ocean. Because this beachfront property is not yet your promised land. A similar thing happened with Lehi. When his group finally gets to the, oh, the, the launching place where Nephi builds his ship. But Laman and Lemuel, at least, had no problem with staying around for a while. They, it's, in fact, it's interesting. In scholarly circles, they call it the Arabian Bountiful. Uh, there in the southwestern Arabian Peninsula where Lehi's family would have launched into the sea. The Arabian Bountiful, why call it that? Well, because there's an American one. And in 3 Nephi 11, that's where Jesus came to begin his American ministry among the Nephites. There was an American Bountiful. And that's the one that they would need to arrive at in order to come to know Christ. He's not coming to the Arabian one. And so... We have paused on some plateaus long enough. Are you ready to move forward? I get that sense here for them, as the Lord repeats it. I get that sense for us. That's what haunts me about the wander, wander, die, wander, die principle. It's what, haunt, it's what haunts me about practically every prophet telling the rising generation, you're the best we've ever had. Will you be? Will you rise up and cross the Jordan? Because we've been doing this this old way long enough. When I was in the MTC, I felt deeply a spirit of urgency. I wanted to be ready. The first Puerto Rican I met when I got off the plane, I didn't want to have to tell them, hey, we have a message that I'd love to share in a couple of months when I actually know your language. Or I'd love to teach you the gospel in a few months when I figure out how to do so. No, I wanted to be ready day one. And I remember getting a little, well, had a little pocket notebook, and I ripped out a piece of paper, and I wrote in large capital letters the word urgency. We had bunk beds in the MTC, and I slept on the bottom bunk. And at night, looking up, you could see the, the springs, so to speak, that were holding up the, the top bunk. And I would take that, that piece of paper with urgency, and I stuck it up between the coils so that when I woke up in the morning, it would be the first thing that I saw coming out of bed, and I would just try to jump out of bed and live that day of missionary preparation as urgently as I could. It was the last thing I saw at night when I went to sleep. I tried to fall asleep as quickly as I could, urgency even there. When I got to Puerto Rico and got my first missionary bike helmet, the outside was plastic, the inside was styrofoam, and perfect place to engrave. It was already engraven in the fleshy tables of my heart. I wanted to engrave it into the styrofoam inside of that bike helmet. And so with my pen, I poked out the word urgency in those same big capital letters. And the, the first thing I saw when I got off my bike at an appointment, taking off my bike helmet and seeing it before me, urgency, teach as, as well as you possibly can. Time is of the essence. It was the last thing I saw when I strapped back up and got on my bike and I pedaled like the wind, <laughs> trying urgently to move forward in my mission. I still feel that. It is still engraven in the heart. And I think we have paused on some, in some places long enough. Let's move forward. 
in verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, The Lord your God hath multiplied you, and behold, ye are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. The Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as ye are, and bless you as he hath promised you. He already referred to this land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here he's hinting, I'm already beginning to fulfill those promises. The, the three P's of the Abrahamic covenant that we talked about, posterity and promised land and priesthood, along with all that comes with it. He's saying, you're already like the stars of heaven. And God intends to multiply you a thousand times yet more than this. And if the posterity promise is already happening, and the promised land promise is right across the river, oh, I'm, I gave you the priesthood promise from Sinai. You are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. At least that's my intention for you. Are you ready to live up to this? Because I am. I have been chomping at the bit for the last 400 years plus since I first promised Abraham all these glorious blessings. So, spirit of urgency, first lesson. Second lesson, have you learned to obey? Not only are you tired of just kind of wandering through the wilderness, are you tired of the disobedience that caused it? So, chapter 1, verse 9, I spake unto you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. And here's why, verse 12, How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? Remember, Moses is reviewing past history. And here he's talking about Moses chapter, excuse me, Exodus chapter 18, when he, when Jethro points out, you're killing me and you're killing yourself and you're killing the people, Moses. You've got to learn to delegate and you have to learn to teach the people so that they can teach them correct principles so they can govern themselves, right? That's what we learned back then. And so here's this reminder of it. I couldn't do it by myself. And so I began to delegate. But the way he says it there. The three things I couldn't handle were the cumbrance, the burden, and the strife. Now, the first and second of those are largely unavoidable for a leader. You parents know that already. Uh, the cumbrance, that's actually the word Jesus used when he talked with Martha. You are cumbered about much serving. And burden, it's the word that he uses in the parable of the laborers of the vineyard. You are bearing the burden and the heat of the day. But that's what you signed up for when you became a leader or maybe not signed up for, <laughs> it's what you were given. It is what you signed up for when you became a parent. And there have been times where I sat down with my children and explained to them that the cumbrance and burden is not a problem. It's what we signed up for. But it's the third of those three things Moses mentions that make the first two so hard to bear. It's the strife. It was murmuring at the waters of Mara and Meribah. It was complaining about manna and then having too much quail to handle, it was the constant bickering and disobedience, the rebellion in the ranks. That's what made the burden unbearable. That's what really cumbered us beyond the, the mere cumbrance of, of guiding you people home. There have been times where I have sat down with my children and very calmly, <laughs> but very honestly tried to explain to them, this is what life as a parent looks like. This is family life from a parent's perspective. It's a lot of work and it's glorious work, okay? Uh, we, we love you. It's, we want to be cumbered and burdened with, uh, with all the things that you need as far as support from us. 
But it's hard to, to provide for a family. It's hard to run a home. It's hard enough to keep track of everyone's needs and meet them. It's hard enough to do that without heaping strife on top of that. And those have been some sweet conversations as my children kind of realize, wow, that's the part that we can control. That's the part we don't have to add. As I've said to them, there are times where it's all we can do as parents to keep our head above water, keep stretching our snorkel tip, and trying to keep up with cumbrance and burden. But for you to fight us over it, there's times that it's, it's as much as we can muster to remind you one time of the thing that needs to get done. And when you fight back or push back, when, you're, when there's strife between you and fights we have to break up or strife towards us because we're asking you to do what you know you need to, that, that it sometimes pushes us beyond the point of what we can bear. And so to you children... No, you shouldn't ever feel guilty for cumbrance and burden. You are a joy to your parents. Mine are to me and my wife. But if there's anything you can do to avoid adding strife to the mix, you'll bless your parents eternally. And maybe your kids will end up doing the same for you. I hope so anyway. And so as Moses continues this part of the reminder, again, just learn to obey. Don't add strife. He then adds what came as a result of that realization that I can't do it all myself. Verse 13, he says, Take you men, wise men, he says, and understanding and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. And he answered me and said, This thing which thou hast spoken is good for us to do. Great list of qualities. Wisdom, understanding, known among the tribes. You see, if you have the wisdom, intelligence will remember these laws. Wisdom, you'll actually want to live them better than your parents did. Wisdom, in fact, will help you take those laws and apply them to your present circumstance. That's going to be important. And understanding, if wisdom really can wrap the mind and heart around the law, understanding can wrap the mind and heart around the people being asked to live it. If I can be understanding and, un and know what people are going through, then perhaps... I'll be more willing to, to better apply the law to their circumstances. I'll be able to roll with the punches, including even the strife on occasion. But I do need to have that understanding. And then known among you, that suggests visibility. It suggests relationships. It suggests that I know you and you know me, and we're just trying to get through this journey together. That's exactly what God had promised them with Joshua and with Caleb and with the 70 elders of Israel that are now poised to lead this people into the promised land. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he goes on, I commanded you at that time all the things which ye should do. That explains why Exodus has the law in it. If you think about what he's just described, that was Exodus 18. Uh, let's start delegate. Let, let me teach you correct principles so you can govern yourselves. Here, as he reminds them, I taught you all the things that you should do. That explains chapter 19 as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It explains chapter 20. Here are the Ten Commandments. It explains Exodus 21, 22, 23. All of the law you were supposed to live. That's the first law. Well, now let's give you the second law, Deuteronomy and hope that you do a better job of living it. Let's add some persuasion 
to the mere principles that I gave you before. So let's do our best to live it this time. Lesson three was to overcome their fear of others with faith in God. So he says in chapter 1, verse 19, when we departed from Horeb, our history lesson continues, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness. He's looking back at all the difficulties of the journey. But he tells them, we've gotten to this point, and now I say, verse 21, Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee. Go up and possess it, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath said unto thee. Fear not, neither be discouraged. Fear is what kept your fathers and mothers from crossing the Jordan a generation ago. Will you have more faith than they did? They listened to the fear of the ten, and those ten are gone, as are your parents. Will you listen to the faith of the two? Because those two remain, as does their faith. So lean into it. Fear not. Don't be discouraged. He reviews the, Moses reviews the experience of the twelve spies. Uh, lets them, kind of gets them up to speed on everything that happened back then, 38 and a half years ago. He says in verse 26, Notwithstanding, ye would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And then this added detail, interesting here. We didn't catch this when the, when the story unfolded in the book of Numbers. And ye murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Whither shall we go up? Now that we didn't catch before. Over and over we saw murmuring of like, oh, you should have just let us die in, in Egypt or die here in the wilderness. But to realize from this account they were murmuring in their tents. This was behind closed doors. Maybe they didn't think anyone was aware. And yet God, who sees the thoughts and intents of the heart, can even overhear the murmuring behind the tent flap. And specifically, what were they saying? God must hate us. That's why he's let us out. So it was more than just, oh, you should have just let us die in the wilderness or back in Egypt. It was... What is God doing? He's doing this to harm us out of his own hatred of us. Talk about misjudging God and as a result, misunderstanding their own circumstance. That's usually what happens. Nephi saw it clearly in 1 Nephi when, I mean, he was going through the same hard things of picking up and leaving Jerusalem as his older brothers. But he didn't murmur because he turned to God and saw the hand of God in this and this hard saying, not Laman and Lemuel. The, the best verse on this is where Nephi says that his brothers murmured because they knew not the dealings of that God who created them. Did you catch that? The reason that they misunderstand their own experience is because they misjudge God. They don't get it. They don't understand the dealings of God. And so Moses is going to try to introduce them to him to God, just like Nephi was trying to introduce his brothers to God as well. If you, I'll put it this way, if you are struggling in circumstance, if you are wrestling with your trials and your difficulties, please do not assume that this is evidence of God's hatred or his disappointment or his absence. He is there, I know it. And as I have gone through difficulty and trial. I am so grateful that I know it's not God hating on me. It's actually evidence of a God who loves me enough to help me become more like him through my trials. 
that he chastens those that he loves, as we learned last year in the Doctrine and Covenants. That we, when we realize that we're, we signed up for a day in the gym and not a day at the spa, and we ought to be grateful when God does not yank the bar up the moment he sees us sweating. Oh, we have to know what God is truly like. And if we have that faith in the divine nature, then it's so much easier to dispel fear and overcome murmuring and just trust in a God who loves us despite of hardship here on the ground. In chapter 1, verse 29, he, again he reminds them, the same third lesson learned from their past, overcome fear of others with faith in God. He says, Then I said unto you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them, these surrounding nations. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you, according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where thou hast seen how that the Lord thy God bare thee, as a man doth bear his son, in all the way that ye went until ye came unto this place. Remember that great line from the hymn book, we have proved him in days that are past. That's what Moses is reminding them of. He did all in his power to get you out of Egypt, to get you through the wilderness, and it's that same God who loves you, who has supported you, that will carry you across the river and conquer the nations of Canaan. Trust in that. Dread not. Don't be afraid. In verse 32, yet in this thing, ye did not believe the Lord your God. At least your parents didn't. There's that lack of faith. There's that lack of trust. And it was driven by fear. You can't succumb to it. So, another reminder. Chapter 2, verse 36. Throughout your entire journey, there was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all unto us. He says similar words in chapter 3, verse 5. All these cities were fenced with high walls, gates, and bars. But the Lord delivered us. Yes, the, the spies came back with those giant grapes, but also reports of the giant men that were on the other side of Jordan. Don't fear them. God has overcome every high wall, every, every dangerous enemy all along the way. And so we have evidence of that. Hold on to it. Trust that God will continue to do so within the promised land. He says in chapter 3, verse 21, and I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Thine eyes have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto these two kings, kings that they've been fighting against. So shall the Lord do unto all the kingdoms whither thou passest. Ye shall not fear them. For the Lord your God, he shall fight for you. You have evidence of God's almighty hand. Hold on to that from your past, and it will give you all the encouragement you need. To pursue your future. Well, the fourth lesson that these history, this history lesson seems to give them is to be careful how you treat others along the way. And as we are wondering, when will we finally be sick and tired of the plateau that we're on and actually head back to Zion, <laughs> spiritually speaking, truly build the kingdom of God upon the earth, how am I treating people along the way? Because that's what Zion consists of. I better be practicing and get up to speed. So chapter 2, verse 4, Command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coasts of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. So take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore, meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreadth. 
because I've given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. He's going to say the same thing about the Moabites in verse 9 and the same thing about the Ammonites in verse 19. In both cases, he says, I have given their territory unto the children of Lot for a possession. Now, this is some interesting oh, family reunions, so to speak. God is reminding them, don't mess with the Edomites because Edom belongs to Esau, Jacob's brother. And don't mess with the Moabites or the Ammonites because that belongs to the sons of, or the descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. This is extended family we're talking about. And I have already promised them, promised lands of their own. Yes, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But since Lot is connected to Abraham, I, I'm keeping an eye on him. Since uh, Esau is connected to Jacob, I'm going to keep an eye on him as well. And so don't take what belongs to them, not even a foot breadth. It, this really strikes me when it comes to interfaith dialogue, interfaith work, that these are our spiritual cousins, so to speak. That if you trace things back far enough, we're all related, right? And what I picture God saying here is, let them hold the territory that they have. In terms of the spiritual truth, the strength, the gifts that I have given them. You don't have to take over. You don't have to expel them. You don't have to rob them of what is theirs just for you to claim what I have promised you. We all have a part to play. We all have pieces of the puzzle. And if God has given us anything, it's the puzzle box to help us see where everything comes together and how it all fits and what this final picture is supposed to look like. It's going to be a tapestry with threads from, from everywhere. And to be open to that, to honor them and say, you know what? Like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and all the way up to President Nelson have said repeatedly, to those of other faiths, hold on to all the truth you have. Simply come and see if we can add more to it. Give us a chance to see how we can weave this all together into one great whole. As the book of Ephesians tells us, chapter 1, if the job of the final dispensation, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God will gather in one all things in Christ, then that's our job. Not to deny people, but to bring them in, to gather in one. And our theology and our practice allows us to do that in ways I've never seen any other theology or practice allow for. It's amazing to me. And so I just want to pause it there to consider that. Boots on the ground, this is a live and let live approach for Israel. You will conquer the Canaanites. If you remember what God had said to Abraham way back in Genesis 15, your people will be stuck in bondage in Egypt for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. They don't deserve to be kicked off of the land. There will come a day where their wickedness will cause the land itself to spew them out, to vomit them. That's what the language we saw earlier in, in the books of Moses. We'll see the same thing happen to Israel. We'll keep your eye out for that later on. But honor people who honor me, even if they don't yet have a fullness. And do not come in with guns blazing trying to scare them out of territory that is a gift that I have given them. If we're ever going to invite all nations, 
to partake of this feast of fat things, then we need to be careful with our feet as we are walking through their territory and not take as much as a foot breadth from the goodness that God has shown them. I hope that makes sense on our journey towards our millennial promised land. Fifth and final lesson in these historical chapters, learn to accept what God gives you along the way. You see, Moses was banking on God's mercy. God had just told them, be merciful to the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites. And so he says an interesting thing in verse 24. We're still in chapter 3 here. O Lord God, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness, thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might? I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain in Lebanon. You see what Moses is trying to sneak in? It's almost like, I see your good graces, God. I see your good graces to people that weren't fully obedient to you. Edomites, Moabites, uh, Ammonites. Even strange backstories like the children of Lot. Even sold birthrights like Esau. But you're honoring them. You're giving them their portion. Can I please have mine? I see a lot of humanity here in Moses. A lot of humility. It's meek Moses again. But... Appealing to God's greatness and his might. If you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about it's not God's greatness, it's his goodness that he has shown Moses and wants us to recognize. Well, Moses is banking on both. But it's interesting here the answer that he receives because it's not a matter of greatness and might. It's a matter of justice and mercy. And so he explains to the people in verse 26, the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, let it suffice thee. Speak no more unto me of this matter. Reminds me of Joseph Smith begging God, please tell me the timing of the second coming. And the Lord says, uh-uh, and trouble me no more concerning the matter. Uh, to see the Lord, I've told you, please be content with the answer that I've given. Yes, bank on my mercy. It's there for you. But learn to understand my justice as well. And be content with what I have allotted you. Some of us will have to stay in the wilderness a little longer. Others will be able to cross into the promised land. But to, to understand and acknowledge the wisdom, the might, the power, as well as the justice and mercy of God, and be okay with whatever he gives us. Now, I have to confess something here. The way the Lord says it, let it suffice thee is that part. Be content, just accept, be all right with that. But the other, the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes. Now, there's other translations that, that define that as on your account. So he was mad at me on your account, which sounds about accurate, right? Uh, what Moses did was so small compared to what the people, in fact, it was... That's almost one of those, uh, if the people hadn't been pushing me so hard, all that strife along with the cumbrance and burden, I wouldn't have yelled at them. I wouldn't have vented. I wouldn't have smote the rock. I would have calmly spoken to it like you asked. I wouldn't have said, you rebels, if they hadn't been rebellious. And I wouldn't have taken any kind of claim that I was the one bringing you water from the rock. I know it's, I know it's God. 
I know it's the, <clears throat> but have you ever felt justified in, <laughs> in being a little unjust? Have you ever felt vindicated? Oh, maybe the natural man or the natural woman is telling, oh, they deserved that. Or you had every reason to respond in that way. Well, maybe. But to see God's justice as far as I cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. But you keep giving them second chances. I know. But here's what I need you to understand, Moses. For mercy not to rob justice, justice has to be served. And for people not to begin presuming upon my grace, then there's going to have to be an object lesson of what my justice truly demands. The not one sin. The not with any degree of allowance. For me to offer them mercy and not for it to backfire. I'm going to have to offer you justice and not even give you an inch of wiggle room. Does that sound like someone mightier than Moses to you? Because the more I've wrestled with this, and all week that's been something that's been weighing on me too, as we saw what Moses had done wrong and thinking it's so minor. And if I could have been Moses's Advocate, his defense attorney, you bet I would have begged for leniency. Mercy on the court, because look at everything else he's done. Look at what he was up against. Do we not see some mitigating circumstances, Your Honor? But I'm not the defense attorney. Instead, I want to talk about our defense attorney. Our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who was willing to accept a complete lack of mercy on the Father's part. So we can understand what justice really demands. So that we can lock those two into, into, to prove a contrary here. To lock this paradox in place and realize that whenever mercy is shown, justice is still there trying to strike a balance. Lest we presume upon his grace. Lest we take Jesus for granted and just, oh, put it on his tab. He's always forgiving. To think about what the Father had to do to balance his own justice and mercy perfectly. To prove to us that yes, I am a merciful God and a just God as well. He could not remove the bitter cup from Jesus. You'll see several times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses just pleading, can I please go into the promised land? I've spent my whole life preparing for this and trying to prepare the people for it. Please, can I go? Just like Jesus three times in the garden. Please, Father, is there any way this bitter cup can be removed from me? And if there was ever someone deserving of the Father's mercy, it was him. If there was ever someone that should have gone into the promised land, it's Moses. I'm sorry, son. I can't let you in. The people need to see justice. And I'm even sorrier, son, that I cannot remove this bitter cup. I will send my angel to strengthen you, but that's the best that I can do. Because I cannot wave away your wickedness. Not yours, Jesus, the people's. I can't just wish it away. 
it has to be atoned for or mercy would rob justice and that's not the kind of father I can afford to be. I hope the Holy Ghost helps you feel some things as you wrestle with what God has just told Moses. Let it suffice. Be okay with what I've given. Understand my balance of justice and mercy because I'm walking a razor's edge here. A God who is so perfect at proving contraries is asking Moses to be an object lesson and the ultimate visual aid for this. And I hope that we can see Jesus in Gethsemane pleading for similar things. There's something powerful here. What I do love, like I said, I can send you an angel to strengthen you. For Moses, I'll let you take a peek. And no, you won't cross the river, but you can climb the mountain. And there's quite the view from Nebo. So verse 27, 28, God says to Moses, Get thee up into the top of Pisgah, this mountain range. Mount Nebo is the one he actually climbs. And lift up thine eyes westward, and northward, and southward, and eastward. Behold it with thine eyes, for thou shalt not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua, encourage him, strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. Sometimes God does give us a glimpse of glories that we'll never attain in this life, but we will in the life to come. Or goals that we won't accomplish, but perhaps our children will. And to charge them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, as Moses does to Joshua, they need all three. Sometimes we charge without encouraging and strengthening. Sometimes we do all this encouraging and strengthening without actually telling them what is they're supposed to do. We need to give them all three. We need to be content. We need to honor whatever it is that God gives us and rejoice in the things he gives to later generations yet to come. Now, are we ready to obey? After we, stop, or after we pass these three chapters of history, looking at their past, and the five lessons that the Lord seems to be reiterating from their prior experience, develop a spirit of urgency. Learn to obey. Overcome your fear through faith in me. Be careful how you treat other people along the way. And please, Trust that I know what I'm doing in terms, of what I, in terms of what I give you and in terms of what I withhold from you. I am your leader along the way. I'll bring you home. Just trust me as we go. And trust the commandments that I give you because you need to learn to live them. With that, we're actually ready for this charge to keep the commandments in chapter 4. Powerful chapter. In verse 1, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that ye may live. He's going to repeat that at the end of this book as well. And go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. See, Moses was supposed to charge Joshua. He does. And now he's charging all the people. He's encouraging them. He's strengthening them. you got to hearken. you got to listen. Better than your parents did with me. 
and hearken to the statutes and the judgments. Interesting difference. To me, a statute seems to be something set in stone. And they were, literally, on Sinai, right? Judgments often seem to be more of the momentary judgment call. It's that wisdom that we talked about from the previous chapter, that you know how to apply it to this present circumstance. And so please listen to both statutes and judgments and live them. Then verse 2, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Sound familiar to any of you return missionaries that had the end of the book of Revelation shoved in your face? By a well-meaning Christian that read Revelation 22 and its prohibition about adding or taking away from Scripture as some kind of prohibition against the Book of Mormon, for example. I'm sure we've all uh, been through that. Now, what they didn't understand, of course, was that the book of the, well, the Bible was not compiled when John wrote that at the end of the book of Revelation. So he, so he couldn't possibly have been referring to the Bible as a whole as something you can't add or diminish from. He was talking about the book of Revelation itself. And the other side of the, of the coin is not only is, is John not saying what you think he's saying, but if he is, then what do you think about Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2? Because there Moses is giving them a very similar prohibition. You better not add or take away. Well, does that mean we, well, hey, we're done with Come Follow Me this year. Fantastic. Uh, we can just coast the rest of, no, not fantastic. I, like, I love scripture study with you. But is this prohi prohibiting anything from Joshua down through Malachi? let alone the New Testament? Not at all. In fact, I've, I said this to you last year in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, uh, where this prohibition against additional scripture from Revelation 22 is included in our additional scripture. It's the most bold uh, response to that I can imagine. Because it's saying, oh yeah, by the way, in all this stuff that we're adding to the Bible, we're not actually adding to the Bible at least not in a way that would cause concern for John in warning us. We could add, not in a way that would cause concern for Moses back in Deuteronomy. As I've said before, the canon of Scripture, our standard works, canon is a measuring stick. And we talk about the, can the list of authoritative texts. That's what the canon is. You even do it in literature, like the literary canon. Here's the best works of literature in, uh, that, you, that you should all read. Well, ask Catholics, though, about canon, and they'll also mention canon law. And so there's a canon as list and a canon as law. And the point I'm trying to make here, based on what Deuteronomy says, and then new scripture follows, what uh, the book of Revelation says, and then additional scripture can follow, is that you can add to the canon as list as long as it does not do damage to the canon as law. You understand what I mean by that? I kind of picture it as a box, and the box is a certain shape. Now, there's lots of scripture in that box. It all fits the same shape. It's all the same size. It's just coming at it from different angles and different time periods from different prophets, right? And there's still space in the box. And so you can add additional scripture to it without doing damage to the shape of the canon itself. In the early church, they didn't talk about the canon being open or closed. They talked about the canon not being full. Interesting. That's where I get the box idea. Oh, there's plenty of room. Just make sure it fits. Okay. You can add Mark, Luke, and John. Just make sure that 
that Matthew see, you know, weighs in and goes, oh yeah, I agree with it all. Uh, you can add Nephi and, and Mormon and, and Moroni or Samuel the Lamanite. Why? Because this, the rest of our biblical cloud of witnesses can hear what they say and go, oh, amen. We teach the same. And you can say the same for the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl Great Price. The words of living prophets, they add to this cloud of witnesses and just increase its density without doing damage to its shape. Okay? There's nothing wrong with the rest of the Old Testament based on what Moses is saying here. And there's nothing wrong with additional scripture based on what John says in Revelation 22. Okay? Important thing to keep in mind, especially as we're sharing additional scripture with people that I hope are open to receive the blessings of this open canon. Well, Moses goes on. He reminds them that God had given them the commandments. And he says to them in verse 6, Keep, therefore, and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding. Those were the words he talked about, these additional people, these 70 elders, he would add. Now it's all you people. The, the, the law itself is your wisdom. It's your understanding. And it's wise and understanding in the sight of all the nations around you, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. In fact, in verse 8, he adds, What nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Have you noticed that when you live the gospel, people, people notice it? People recognize there's something different about you. And in some ways, it's like, well, yeah, God gave us like the cheat codes on life. Uh, they're called the commandments of God. It's the best way to live. And I've never seen anything so wise, so understanding as the, as the tips and tactics to get through mortality that God has given us in his holy commandments. Now, to see the kind of lives he helps us live. No wonder there are people that look, and even if they don't want to live it themselves, because it seems too hard. Oh, it isn't. It's actually liberating. It's actually wise. It's, there's nothing quite like it. And it has set us apart. Not better, but different in a glorious way. One that people can recognize. But before that goes to your heads, Israel, whether ancient or modern. Moses adds in verse 9, only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, but teach them, teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. Pass this down through the generations. He adds in verse 23, take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. You've got to be careful. You've got to be diligent. You've got to remember Remember that sacrament prayer, always remember him. That's what Moses is getting at here. Because if you forget, if you don't hold on to these things in your heart, I love the way he puts it, don't let it depart from thy heart. And in fact, he gives us the best way to keep it there. Well, teach it, teach it. I'm amazed that by teaching things, it cements it in our own minds and hearts. It makes me feel a little selfish and a little guilty that I get to do so much teaching with, with you. I hope that you'll pass it on. Teach it to your children and your grandchildren. Teach it to those around you because every time you do, it adds a layer of, of memory. It cements it into the heart 
and mind exactly where it needs to be. In verse 25 of chapter 4, he says, When thou shalt beget children and children's children, those ones that you're going to teach all these things to, when you shall have remained long in the land and shall corrupt yourselves, uh uh-oh, no matter how long you end up living there, you better keep your track record good, okay? Don't fall astray even if it's a couple generations later because this is what Moses adds. If that happens, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. President Nelson just talked about spiritual momentum. But momentum is not perpetual motion. You can't just start it and then it just keeps running itself. No, you, you keep pushing, you keep pedaling. To continue that momentum, you have to continue what you were doing to get up to speed to begin with. And so no matter how long you've been there, uh, remain long in the land. If you want to stay there any longer than that, yeah, keep the commandments. Otherwise, verse 27, the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. So there's a nod to the scattering of Israel. We see those scattered throughout the the Old Testament long before it actually happens because the Lord knows that that's what Israel is in for. I do love the way he says it, though, lest you be scattered. But then what's he say? To all the places where the Lord will lead you? Hmm, interesting. Scattering seems kind of accidental. But no... God will lead you to places. Even in your wickedness, God will keep a hand on the helm and will lead you to places from which he can call you the moment you're ready to repent. That's what he gets at in verse 29. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. So one verse after a warning about the scattering is a promise of the gathering. The moment you turn back to me, this is the prodigal son coming to himself and turning back to the father and the father running out to meet him. Of course I know where you are. I led you there, okay? And I will lead you home as soon as you start getting homesick, as soon as you start realizing where you ought to be. So this gathering promised, and remember the order, the Book of Mormon clarifies this as well. We talk about the literal gathering of Israel, a physical gathering to their land of promise. But according to this verse, and repeatedly in the Book of Mormon, like I said, that literal physical gathering is preceded by a spiritual gathering as they turn back to the God of Israel, hopefully with our help. In fact, it needs to be our help. It says in verse 30, when thou art in tribulation, And all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days. You see the the timing of this? That's where we come in. That's why we have to be gathering Israel. So when it happens in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and turn is the word for repent. So when, when you repent, and shalt be obedient unto his voice. You see, he's going to give you another chance to do better. For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swear unto them. So the real question is not God's forgetfulness, it's ours. 
Will we remember? It's not God turning away from us. It's us turning away from him, but then hopefully turning back towards him and remembering his mercy and relying upon it. This all is based on repentance. And so no wonder we are sent forth as missionaries to cry repentance to all the world in hopes that it begins to resonate within them and they begin to turn back to the source of that invitation. They can repent. You can come home. You won't be forsaken, forgotten, destroyed. You'll be gathered. In verse uh, 32, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee, since the day that God created man upon the earth. So there's throughout time. And ask from the one side of heaven unto the other. So that's throughout space. Whether there hath been any such thing as this great thing is or hath been heard like it. Now, that's a great intro. What the Lord is saying there is, I want you to imagine all of history and all geography, okay, throughout all time and throughout all space, has anything like this happened? Now, remember, all of this in context of you got to learn to obey, okay? It's the great charge of, Je- of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, think of the past, get ready for the future, learn from your parents' mistakes, keep the commandments of God, you can do this. Don't forget me. I haven't forsaken you. If you things go wrong, turn around and come back. I, I will gather you back home. Because has there ever been anything quite like this before? Have you ever seen it? Ever heard it? Throughout time and space? It's like, tell me, what is it? I'm getting, I'm getting antsy. Okay? And then he tells them, verse 33. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire? As thou hast heard, and live? Has anyone actually lived to tell about times that God has spoken to them? And then he adds, this was actually earlier, verse 7 in this chapter. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? What amazes me about that? See, that was in the context of, has has there ever been laws and commandments so amazing, so wise, so understanding as all of this? That was what he said earlier on. And in that same passage, it's speaking of which, has there ever been a people whose God was so close to them, who was so nigh unto them? And that's what he's getting back to at the end of that chapter. Has, has, Has there ever been such a great thing throughout all time and all space? that a God was willing to speak to his people. And they lived to tell about it. You see, this is the infinite willing to become the intimate. And that's mind-blowing. You were so scared of ascending Sinai because of the smoke and the fire and the thunder and the lightning, and yet God wanted you all up there with me. And Moses sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God, right? DNC 84. Do you understand what God wants here? You see, the, the Jews at the time of Jesus couldn't handle the, the thought that Jehovah, that I am that I am, would come and mingle among them. They couldn't wrap their heads around the possibility of an incarnation and a condescension. No, God is at a safe distance. Oh, he doesn't want to be. 
it was too much for the people of Joseph Smith's day to think that God would condescend to speak to him. And it's too much for too many in our day to think that there could actually be living prophets in the world with communication with a God who wants to be nigh unto us all. Do you understand what God is getting at at the end of chapter 4? Are we okay with the infinite becoming intimate? Because there's nothing quite like it. A God who's willing to come close to us. How could we not want to come close to him? By keeping his commandments. You see the persuasive power of what the Lord is trying to lay out here? That's why he says at the end of this chapter, after he's reviewed more evidence of God's hand in their lives throughout all this journey, trying to help them see just how nigh, just how close God wants to come. He says in verse 39, Know therefore this day, consider it in thine heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else. And as a result, verse 40, thou shalt keep therefore his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee this day, that it may go well with thee and with thy children after thee, and that thou mayest prolong thy days upon the earth which the Lord thy God giveth thee forever. That last line should actually ring some bells from the Ten Commandments, the fifth one specifically. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Here it is again. It'll go well. It, you'll prolong thy days upon the earth which the Lord thy God giveth thee. You talk, talk about elevating, honoring thy father and thy mother. Capitalize the F and the M. And we have heavenly parents that want to come as close as they can in hopes of convincing us that they don't hate us, that they love us, that there is mercy and justice. And as they balance those two, trying to prepare us to be with them and better yet, to become like them. That's the hope here. Children growing up in God. You ready to obey? And that we're only four chapters in, okay? How's that for persuasive power? Now, chapter five, he's going to keep after that and try to help them see that there are incredible blessings that come from obedience. Here's the, the carrot being waved, uh, hung, hung before them. So Deuteronomy 5, verse 1, Moses called all Israel, said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep and do them. So learn it. That's put it in your head. Keep it. That's hold on to it in your heart. And do it. That's live it with your hands and head and heart and hand. I'm ready to follow God in all that he commands me. In verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. In fact, I was only acting as middleman because you were too scared to come up with me. But did you catch all the pronouns in that passage? The last one was you. This is all about you, not about me. But all the pronouns leading up to it are ours and us. It's, think of it this way. We saw this when God communicates the promise, the covenant directly to Father Abraham. 
and through you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed, through your seed, through your posterity. But when Isaac comes along, God doesn't just leave Isaac at a distance and say, well, you're Abraham's boy, and so you'll, you'll grow up and receive his inheritance too. No, God comes nigh to him and renews the covenant on Isaac directly. He does the same thing with Jacob at Jacob's ladder, right? And so it's not just because you're Abraham's grandson. I'm connected to you personally, directly, individually. And here Moses is saying, God's doing it again. And he's made this covenant with us in Sinai. It's not even with your fathers anymore because they wander, wander, died. He's now trying to renew it with you. Why do you think I'm doing this Deuteronomy, this second law? It's a chance for you to recommit. And as I said, when we talked about the Abrahamic covenant originally, when we are sealed in the temple, that's when God renews this covenant on us directly where we can have the promise of posterity, like the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven, that we can have the ultimate promised land, the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, and finally receive priesthood in all of its fullness, a patriarchal priesthood with husband and wife sharing in that authority eternally. Such a powerful promise. And so these pronouns, hold on to those. Moses then reviews all 10 of the Ten Commandments just like he had given uh, on Sinai to their parents. There is one slight difference when it talks about the Sabbath. For their parents, it was honor the Sabbath because think about creation and what God did then. He rested the seventh day. To this generation, it's remember the Exodus. You finally have a chance to take a day off. <laughs> Your ancestors certainly didn't. And as we talked about with the Sabbath, it'll change or be reiterated a third time in the New Testament when the Sunday becomes the Lord's day because of the resurrection of Jesus. So how do we keep the Sabbath day holy? We make it a day of creation, a day of exodus, a day of deliverance, and a day of at one of new life in Christ. They're being reminded of that and all the other nine of those Ten Commandments also. Now, he tells them back in Sinai, the people had gratefully acknowledged that they had heard the voice of God. They'd actually lived to talk about it, right? That's how nigh God was willing to come. They accepted the law. Moses had, in fact, they asked Moses to be their intermediary with God. In verse 27, they had said to Moses at the time, Go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say, and speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee. We will hear it. We will do it. So they were accepting. At least they paid some lip service there. But God needs more than lip service. He said, God said to Moses at that time, this is now verse 29, Oh, that there were such an heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. In other words, if only they had lived up to those noble aspirations, I could have blessed them as I promised if they had simply kept the, the words that they had promised. You see what Moses is getting at? That was your parents. Are you ready to do better? They talked the talk. They didn't walk the, well, they did do a lot of walking. <laughs> okay, wander, wander, die. But they didn't walk after the commandments of God. You have a chance to do better. So verse 32, ye shall observe to do therefore as the Lord your God hath commanded you. Ye shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. That's all that wandering. The quickest route to your final destination is a straight line. So let's walk the straight and narrow. Let's ascend 
Jacob's ladder, that vertical covenant path. Oh, if as you stray, return. As you're scattered, I will gather you. But let's do our very best to keep the commandments of God. Now, chapter 6, he's going to boil it all down to one great commandment. Let's simplify things. If, if all of this oral law and chapter 21 and 22 and 23 of Exodus was too much to handle, and let's boil it down to the 10, the big 10 in Exodus 20, or what we just saw in Deuteronomy 5. Is 10 even too much? Okay, how about one? Can you do this one thing? Chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. In Hebrew, this is called the Shema, which comes from the word hear, the way verse 4 began. Hear, O Israel. And what are we hearing? We're hearing God's ultimate command. Will you love me as I love you? Will you show that love by keeping my commandments? If ye love me, keep my commandments, Jesus will say. Well, here, Jehovah is basically saying the same. And if you can keep that one thing, you'll keep all the others as a result. No wonder Jesus will say to this lawyer who's asking, what's the most important commandment of the law? Well, there's two of them. The first is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength. Uh, that's the great, important one of all. The first great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In fact, remember we saw that back in Leviticus. So this is not New Testament Jesus thinking outside the box. This is New Testament Jesus pointing to Old Testament Jehovah saying, we should be used to this by now. Upon those two laws hang all the law and the prophets. Everything else can be boiled back down to that. So hear this. Listen to this. In fact, I said it already. This is the Shema in Israel. That is the Jewish equivalent of the Christian Lord's Prayer. Think about how often Christians will say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And be reminded that God's kingdom is coming. Being reminded that he will provide us with his daily bread. It, it, no wonder the Lord's Prayer is the pattern for all prayers yet uh, that have come since. Well, same here, the Shema. This is what in Jewish worship they repeat oh, more than anything else. And it's a reminder to love God, to show that love by, by obedience. By the way, uh, one of you wonderful viewers reached out to me recently and said, please don't forget uh, in Leviticus when it says to love thy neighbor, it says to do it as thyself. So as we talk about the, the two great commandments, there's a third that kind of sneaks in. As we talk about the cross and our need to take up the cross daily with a vertical beam or post and a horizontal cross beam, a vertical commandment to connect with God daily and love him with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, a horizontal beam uh, to reach outward and love our neighbor, but to love them as ourselves, which means we do and should love ourselves too. For some of you, that's the hardest one. And yet to realize how God sees us, 
See, that's the beautiful thing. Love is meant to be reciprocal. It's meant to go flow in both directions. And so if I love God with all my heart, might, mind, and strength, how can I not feel his love pouring into me? Maybe that's why it needs to be the vertical. It just flows right on down to us. As a result, how can I not love my neighbor when I realize that God loves them too, that God sent his son to die for them as much as he did for me? How can I not want? That's what Joseph Smith taught. A person who is filled with the love of God isn't content to just hog it all to themselves. No, they want to go through the world and pick up people hoist them onto their shoulders, cast their sins behind their backs. They just want to love others. In the process, how can we not love ourselves? Knowing what God thinks of us and is willing to do for us, that he knows that great, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Think of all he did, that we have so much evidence of that, if we'll have eyes to see. So anyone who may be wrestling like this amazing uh, conversation partner that reached out to me. I hope that you do come to see yourself as God sees you, because as a result, how can you not love yourself? That's what I said in my response to her. I just said, of course you should love yourself. I love you already, and I've only read one email. Uh, to see that, oh, it's beautiful how this all comes together. And again, for those who are concerned about the harshness of the God of the Old Testament, oh, see some kindness here. It's everywhere once you open your eyes to see it. Well, keep going. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. And these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart. That's what he's aiming at all along. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. That's how it gets down there, right? Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Oh, so maybe it was smart for me to put that little urgency sign in the top bunk above me. So I could see it when I rose up. I could see it when I lied down. I could see it when I walk. And when I pedal my bike, I could, I could see it everywhere. And to see God everywhere, oh, to understand this is the life we're living. And keep these, these commandments in my heart, on my mind, before my eyes, everywhere. That's what he gets out in verse 8 and 9. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. Thou shalt, they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. There's those tefillin, the phylacteries we talked about in an earlier book. Thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. There's the mezuzah. You are surrounding yourself with reminders. You got a string on every finger, right? Lest you forget like your, like your parents did. Remember me in all things. Remember what God said to Adam when he, when he and Eve left the Garden of Eden. All things are created and made to bear, bear witness of me. I've left oh, love notes everywhere, if you'll see them. And are we leaving enough reminders around us, love notes that point us back to God? I love what Henry B. Eyring once said, that the best missionaries aren't the ones that can merely explain the plan of salvation. No, the best missionaries are the ones for whom the plan of salvation describes the world they live in. You see the difference? It's not like some separate, like, oh, I know these things. I have these talking points. I can share them. Or there's these commandments I'm supposed to live. No, when it becomes righteous reflex, when it's become such a part of us, it's, 
It's the air we breathe and the water we drink. It's the, the language we speak. It's the, the lens through which we view the world. No wonder it's on your hand and in your heart and on your mind and your doorposts and you see it everywhere. And once it is fully internalized, then maybe you can be eternalized, knowing that you will live with God and live like God because you're, you're up to speed. It's what he's trying to make of each of us. In verse 10, he goes on, It shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We keep hinting those old promises. They're about to be fulfilled. To give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. Now that's an interesting verse. It's one we have to hold on to. In fact, we'll see it again next week in Joshua, because Joshua holds on to this. What, what the Lord is hinting at here, by all that repeated language, you're going to have a city that you didn't build. You're going to be drinking water from a well you didn't dig. You're going to be eating the fruits of trees you didn't plant. Now, this is interesting. The Lord is clarifying for them. You're going to inherit a land for which you did not have to labor. You're going to go in. It's, you're conquering Canaan, and there's already civilizations there that the land is about to spew out because of their wickedness. And so notice what he says next. And this is one of the key passages in all of Deuteronomy, to the point that we'll be reminded of it next week in Joshua. Verse 12, Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now do you understand how he set up that reminder to remember him? It's going to be too easy, almost. Your parents were so afraid. There's no way we can conquer the promised land. You're going to go in and see just how relatively easy it is as I drive out the inhabitants before you. But if conquering the promised land is relatively easy, the, the problem is remembering who did it for you might end up being relatively hard. Because things you didn't have to pay a price for, you tend to take for granted. And that's the tragedy. Perhaps you've seen it in your own life. And things that were just handed over to you on a silver platter, it's, eh, if I lose it, if I break it, no big deal. It didn't cost me anything to begin with. And that's the caution Moses is giving here. It's one of my favorite passages. And to think about your own inheritances, gifts God has given you, or perhaps through nothing you've done, you were just born into a family of faith. Do we take it for granted? It's sad sometimes that I think we're losing more lifelong members than we are converts. Because did I ever have to find and gain a testimony of my own? Did I have to fight for it and really work to be able to get something here? No wonder sacrifice is taught so repeatedly throughout Exodus and Leviticus. What's interesting to me here is, and we studied this a bit last year at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants, 
in section 136, which was the revelation to Brigham Young at Winter Quarters, the middle of this pioneer trek. And what we did then was compare the pioneer trek of modern Israel with the Exodus trek of ancient Israel. And do you remember the differences we saw? Here was our list. Side by side, ancient Israel compared to modern Israel, the LDS pioneers. In ancient Israel, they were led by a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. We've been seeing that constantly for the last month or so. LDS mission, uh, or pioneers, on the, on the other hand, well, they were led mainly by inexperienced amateurs to a very poorly scouted area. <laughs> okay, I would have rather had a pillar of fire and cloud of smoke to show me exactly where I needed to go. Now, in ancient Israel, they crossed the Red Sea, and next week we'll see them cross the Jordan River on dry ground. Oh, the water just gets out of the way for you. Whereas the pioneers... Multiple river crossings over and over. Which side of the plat are we supposed to travel on today? And we got to cross over it to get there. Sometimes in near freezing temperatures. In ancient Israel, they were fed with manna for 40 years. Modern Israel, minimal rations, starving along the way. In ancient Israel, you thirsty? Well, just ask Moses. He can smite a rock. <laughs> he can bring forth water. Whereas the pioneers, that's why they had to cross the river so often, because they had to be tied to it if they were ever going to find water to drink for themselves. In ancient Israel, we'll see this repeated later in Deuteronomy, their clothes and their shoes never wore out. How's that for a miracle? You get to wear the same thing for 40 years? My wife would laugh and say, what, that's not a miracle, honey, you do it. You're still wearing the same stuff that I that you were wearing when I met you. Eh, true, sorry. I'd rather buy a book than a, than a shirt. But uh, modern Israel, you want to talk about intense deprivation, incredible suffering. Rather than shoes that never wore out, we're talking bloody footprints left behind in the snow. In ancient Israel, they were led to a land flowing with milk and honey. And the LDS pioneers were led to a land uh, not flowing with much. At least not at that time period. It was a desert that was still years and years from blossoming as the rose. And then add to it on top of that what we just saw. Ancient Israel, you inherited built cities and dug wells and planted vineyards. It was all done for you. Whereas modern Israel, well, go build your own Salt Lake City. Go dig your own well. In fact, your own dugout home. Plant your own vineyards and hope that the crickets don't eat every crop. Pray hard and trust in God. And as a result, always remember him. That's the caution Moses had given. If it's easy, beware lest you forget the Lord. And sadly, ancient Israel forgot the Lord. Whereas those pioneers had it so hard, they didn't forget him. Be careful about making things too easy on yourself or your children. Will it rob them of the chance to do something memorable and come to know a God along the way that is worth remembering to? This is such a key passage. In chapter 2, back in uh, earlier in Deuteronomy, chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord had said, These forty years the Lord thy God hath been with thee, thou hast lacked nothing. But because they lacked nothing, they ended up forgetting everything. 
as opposed to people who lack so much and end up remembering so much of God's goodness to them. That's the type of person I want to be. Moving on in Deuteronomy 6, look at 13. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and shall swear by his name, ye shall not go after other gods, of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you. And why can't we go after other gods? Because those gods can't do anything for us. That's why God can be jealous without being selfish. There's an interesting difference there. I'm jealous for your sake, not for mine. So please be different. So you can make a difference. This was the Nazarite vow, to be separate, to be set apart. This cannot be a joint custody between, between Israel and Egypt or Israel and Canaan. This cannot be joint custody between Zion and Babylon, God and the devil. It doesn't work that way. God wants us to be all his and so do not go after these other gods. And then verse 20, and when thy son asketh thee in time to come, since he's going to know these differences, how come we're not like everybody else? Saying, what mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? That's when you help them know the backstory. That's when you teach them about this glorious past that God has delivered us from Egypt and brought us to this promised land. You see, even the language, the pronouns again, the Lord our God hath commanded you. Mm. He's our God, but are these just your commandments? That's a scary place to be. Thinking about raising our children, do they feel that the commandments are theirs as well? Or is this just something imposed upon them? Or like, well, God made you do it. Do I really have to do it as well? You see, I think we do a great job of teaching our children the what's of the law the commandments, the lifestyle of discipleship. But do we do a good job of teaching them the why? And even more importantly, teaching them the who? That yes, he is our God. So these are our commandments. They're worth living. And here's some of the reasons why. There's actually a great passage in Jerem, in the Book of Mormon. Jerem, verse 11, Wherefore the prophets, the priests, the teachers, we could add the parents, did labor diligently, Exhorting with all longsuffering the people to diligence, teaching the law of Moses. Now you could stop there and say, okay, here's what to do, here's what to do, here's what to do. But it doesn't stop there. Teaching the law of Moses and the intent for which it was given. Persuading them to look forward unto the Messiah and believe in him to come as though he already was. After this manner did they teach them. That's that's good parenting. That's good teaching. Don't just teach them the law, but teach them the intent for which it was given. Here's the what, and here's the why, and the why will boil down to a who, to connect you to God, to receive his blessings, to have a God that is nigh unto you, more than imaginable. Oh, I, hope that, I hope that we're teaching those whys and whos, along with our whats. Now, along the lines of that jealousy we just saw, He's going to give us a whole chapter to really emphasize that. Deuteronomy 7 helps us stay within the covenant, uh, the bounds of this relationship. So he says, as you go in and start displacing all these ites in the land of Canaan, verse 2, utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. 
Now that sounds incredibly harsh by modern day standards or sensibilities. It wasn't harsh by the ancient standard. In fact, it wouldn't have surprised them at all. What would have surprised them was, wait, don't meddle with the Edomites or the Ammonites or the Moabites? Huh, live and let live? No, shocking. The norm would have been, no, go in and take their territory and utterly destroy them. With the ancient Israelites, it was no, only insofar as they have lived wickedness to the point of, of being vomited out of the land. And it took 400 years to get there. there. We will see this next week in Joshua and the week after in Judges. The conquest of Canaan is tough to wrap our hearts around because it's violent. Uh, and we have to understand there that what we saw in Exodus, what we see in Deuteronomy, that there were capital crimes that sin was crime. In our day, we separate those, and no, crime can be punishable by death. But sin, no. Well, think a little harder about what really is the difference between sin and crime. And in a theocracy, which was what ancient Israel was, there's going to be considerable overlap. They're going to be synonymous, basically. And that was the legal code of the day. It's still... It's terrestrial. We're trying to live celestial. So, of course, this is going to feel foreign. Uh, but this was eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and serious consequences because nothing softer than that was sinking into them, both whether Israelite or Canaanite or anybody else. So here it's, I need a peculiar treasure. I need separation. And the problem is if, if righteousness and wickedness combine... What will the end result be? Will both people end up righteous or will both people end up wicked? Best case scenario. And we see this in the New Testament. Again, this growth in God. Going from telestial up to terrestrial, hopefully to, hopefully to get to the celestial. In 1 Corinthians, we'll talk, the, Paul will teach about the unbelieving husband can be sanctified by the believing wife. And vice versa. The, husband, the unbelieving wife can be sanctified by the believing husband. That's great news for people that have either married outside of the covenant or are married within the covenant but have a spouse that no longer wants to be in the covenant, wants to still be in the marriage but no longer wants to be in the covenant. Oh, I'm grateful for that. There's, there's, help, there's comfort and reassurance there. But that's the higher law. Okay, Here, it's... The Mosaic Law that's trying to get them up to speed so they can live up to that one later on. And it is no crossing of those lines, no mixing of those boundaries. You cannot marry outside the covenant. And here's why, verse 4, for they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. Like I said, far cry from 1 Corinthians 7, but they're not there yet. Far cry from DNC 131, what celestial marriage is supposed to be. But as they're moving in that direction, again, it's the danger that he's recognizing. You are so, you're not very far removed from Egypt. And I'm just worried that a glance in the wrong direction and you will slip right back into your old ways. It's going to take a while to build momentum enough that that the lifeguard will save the drowning victim instead of the drowning victim drowning the lifeguard. You've got to be careful with that. Verse 6, 
For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. At least I'm trying to make you into that. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now do you understand why you have to be different? To live differently, to stay separate from those that would drag you down to a lower level of living? In verse 7, he then clarifies this chosenness, this special people status. He says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people. That's a perfect example of the few becoming many, the weak becoming strong. You're getting there. We're starting to go seed like the the sands and the stars. But that's not why I chose you to start with. Or verse 8 I chose you because the Lord loved you, because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. You weren't chosen because of what you were. You were chosen because of what I am. I placed my love upon you. Abraham chose me, and as a result, I chose him. He chose me against the odds, and I'm choosing him against the odds too. Oh, to make him into something better than he was, better than you are, Verse 9, know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, will we be, which keepeth covenant, will we, and mercy with them, oh, we need that, with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Oh, we got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then on down through the generations until we get a Moses and a Joshua and a Caleb and a rising generation of Israelites ready to take the promised land. Well, we're not even close to a thousand generations by that point. But God's mercy, his love, will, will linger. It'll stay upon us if we'll just stay, upon, stay with him. Once you marry Christ, you're in the family for good. His redemption is relentless if we just stay tied to him. And to do so, you cannot tie yourself to worldly anchors that are dragging you back down. Verse 17 then, If thou shalt say in thine heart, These nations are more than I. How can I dispossess them? Maybe that's why they'd be tempted to intermarry. Thou shalt not be afraid of them, God calls but thou shalt well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and unto all Egypt. It's interesting that that's exactly what carries Nephi through his difficulties. When he's up against Laban, what's he say when his brothers are about ready to throw in the towel? We can do this. How do I know? Because God delivered Israel from Pharaoh. And all this is, to borrow Elder Maxwell's phrase, is a local Laban. And if God can deliver Moses from Pharaoh, he can definitely deliver us from Laban. we just got to trust in him. We're going to be different. We're not going to be fearful. We're going to be faithful instead. Verse 22, he then says, The Lord thy God will put out those nations before thee. But notice this phrase, By little and little. Thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon thee. So this is going to be a gradual victory, not a momentary conquest. This is line upon line. This is little by little. If you remember Jacob chapter 5, only cut out the bad branches as the good shall grow. And to be patient with ourselves as we grow up in God. To be patient even in our repentance process, knowing that 
sometimes line upon line is what allows the roots to grow, not just to bring forth good branches. In verse 25, the graven images of their gods shall ye burn with fire. Still that separation. Thou shalt not desire the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it unto thee, lest thou be snared therein, for it is an abomination to the Lord thy God. Look up the word snare in the Old Testament, and almost every time it's talking about surrounding influences. And those are traps to steer clear of. Those are snares that you cannot afford to get caught within. And what I love here is these graven images, you're not even supposed to want the silver or gold that's on them. Suggest it's not solid silver or pure or solid gold. It's just, so there's a rock underneath. There's some wood carving and it's just gilded with gold. This is a surface level thing. And if you were to look past it, you'd be so unimpressed with the gods of the world. The late 19th century in America is referred to by historians as the Gilded Age. You have the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and others, these robber barons, becoming incredibly wealthy. You have a rise of the middle class, but a separation from the lower classes. And, oh, it's golden. Uh, no. Mark Twain, I believe, is the one that coined it. It's not golden. It's just gilded. This is surface-level shine. And that's not even worth wanting. That's what he gets at at the end of chapter 7. Don't even desire it. Not just don't take it. Don't even want it. Well, how do I overcome that desire? Well, see it for what it really is. Look beyond the surface. And this is just a gilded age, not a golden one. That's what we're trying to bring in through righteousness. Well, chapter 8 then. Are you ready for a few more lessons along the way? Things that we've learned in our journey, not just our, our parents during the wander, wander, die years. He begins with a reminder, another one, to keep all the commandments. And then in verse 2 of chapter 8, Moses says, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness, to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. You see, trials really are the ultimate test of what matters most to us. And maybe that was part of the wander, wander, die, was to let this generation grow up, see the mistakes of their parents, make some decisions on their own to do things differently, but to be humbled, to be proven, to find out what we're really made of and what really matters. In verse 3, he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger, and you complained every time. He fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, and you got sick of that too, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know, so here's what you should know, that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Jesus is actually going to quote that at the Mount of Temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Stones to bread? Are you kidding? No, I learned something from our ancestors on the Exodus that I don't live by bread alone. I can trust the word of God and live on that. I have meat to eat that you know not of, he says to the disciples after he's spoken with the woman at the well. I'm not hungry. I don't need that food. I've been feasting upon the work of God and it is filling me. If only ancient Israel had learned that lesson. Th these were spiritual realities tied to temporal ones. And to understand as you gather manna day by day, to trust in the 
parameters, the rules that have been set. Let's make it obvious. If you don't get it right, you go hungry. Uh, if you get it wrong, the food begins to rot. If you wake up late, it starts to melt in the morning. Uh, we're going to, I mean, the stomach is a great tutor. And as you suffer through your own mistakes, well, you live and learn. At least if you want to live, you better learn. And we better learn to keep the commandments of God. That's the lesson the manna has been teaching us for four decades. Let's see how well we learn it. In verse 16, he adds to that. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. That's a repeat of what we saw before. Humbled, proven, see what you're made of. But I love the ending. That was to do you good at the latter end. Yeah, those were really bad short-term consequences, right? Uh, you were hungry and you murmured, you complained. My hope, though, is that it bears fruit eventually, little by little, like we saw earlier. Here, thy latter end. Amazing long-term consequences. At least we hope. In verse 4, there's the reminder, thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. That's the ease of the ancient Exodus compared to the difficulty of the modern one. Verse 5, thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. We saw earlier, God was going to lead you like a son. But when you're the son or the daughter of the person in charge, sometimes you're held to a higher standard. That's sure enough with God. If I'm trying to make you my peculiar treasure, this is like being a coach's kid. Make sense? Uh, to understand that they, you reflect me and my coaching and, and I want to win and you're the one I'm relying upon to make sure we get there. Uh, so if you, if you sense that higher expectation, if you sense the chastening hand of God, it's because he loves you as a son or daughter. You're exactly that. Verse 11 then. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. In verse 14, be careful when life is good, because then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Ease breeds apathy. Like President Packer has said, sometimes the hardest trial is the apparent absence of any Really? Give me that trial then. Well, no. If life is meant to point us to God, and it's usually our trials that do that, then no wonder ease might be our ultimate opposition. Because there's nothing pushing me to look upward. I got everything I need right here. So be careful about that. Again, two times in those verses. Don't forget. Don't forget. In verse 17, if things do get easy, thou shalt say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. Oh, careful there. Don't take credit for your blessings. But I worked for them. I built this business. Okay, fine. But verse 18, thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. So you got to know the who and the why, even when it, when it comes to your own wealth. Yes, you worked for it. And, and you should be grateful for the strength God provided for you to be able to do that work. Yes, you had the wisdom to be able to turn nothing into something. But who gave you the wisdom? If you have gifts, 
realize that there's a giver, that they did not originate with you, and they shouldn't end with you either. So remember the who, God gave you the power to get it, and remember the why, it was meant to help you help him to establish his covenant. If, if, if we intend to bless the entire world, every family on the earth will be blessed. It's going to take a consecrating spirit from all of my saints. So please remember me. Chapter 9, building upon that, is this reminder to please stay humble. Don't take all the credit. Don't take all the glory. Stay humble. You see, Israel is about to conquer people that are stronger than they are. This is the ultimate underdog story. That's why people love it. Okay? We make movies about it. But because it's an underdog, once you, when you, once you overcome the big dog, once you're not under anymore, then sometimes you feel like you're over. And you start looking down at people. That's the problem. So, chapter 9, verse 3, the Lord says, Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee. You have to know that it's not you, that it's him. That'll help keep you humble. And actually, how do you know that it's him? By realizing that what you're accomplishing is way beyond anything you could do on your own. That's a great way to stay meek and to stay humble. And if you don't choose to, then you'll be compelled to. That's what Alma said, right? That's what President Benson said. And what's interesting here is, well, I learned this on my mission the hard way. I've learned it as a teacher the hard way. I, I'm trying harder not to make God teach me this lesson so often. But here's the lesson. When you think you can do it on your own, God usually lets you try. Huh. <laughs> now think about that. He's going to let me try to do it on my own. Oh, oh, no, I, that's not good. That's not good. And then we crash and burn and come with tail between our legs. Can you help me with this next time? Of course. I wanted to help you with it last time. You just thought you'd outgrown me. Well, you haven't. So he says in verse 4, Speak not thou in thine heart, after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. See the difference? Don't say you're in here because of your righteousness. Say that they're out of here because of their wickedness. In some ways, wickedness and righteousness is just relative. And it's not that you are perfectly deserving of this. It's that they were finally perfectly deserving of the justice that is being meted out to them. That's a scary place. And since they would not turn and return, uh, it's, there's an assumption here that there have been opportunities to change, but that they would not hear. They would not hearken to conscience, but continue to decline and descend into a level of iniquity that had to be rooted out. But remember, it's their wickedness that's rooting them out, not your righteousness that's making you literally deserve all the goodness that you're being given. I have a feeling we'll all say the same thing in the Celestial Kingdom, that it's not because of my righteousness that I'm here. It's because of the Lord's goodness, His mercy, His kindness, and my repentance. Just the fact I was willing to change and be changed by Him. You see this most clearly in 1 Nephi 17, as Nephi is trying to explain to Laman and Lemuel about a land of promise that they're about to go to, and a promised land that was no longer being promised to them in Israel because of the wickedness of the people in Jerusalem. 
He says it this way in chapter 17 of 1 Nephi, verses 33 to 35. Now, do you suppose that the children of this land, who were in the land of promise, who were driven out by our fathers, do you suppose that they were righteous? Behold, I say unto you, nay. Do you suppose that our fathers would have been more choice than they if they had been righteous? Again, I say unto you, nay. Behold, the Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. He that is righteous is favored of God. But behold, this people had rejected every word of God, and they were ripe in iniquity. And the fullness of the wrath of God was upon them. And the Lord did curse the land against them, and bless it unto our fathers. Now that is a key passage for this week and the next two weeks with the conquest of Canaan. That the only reason they were driven out was because of their wickedness. And if they had been righteous, they would have been permitted to stay. Interesting that God would, would say that. Oh, we can share. I'm honoring Edomites, Moabites, uh, Ammonites, even though they're not perfect. I'm bringing Israelites into the land, and they're far from perfect. We've seen that for the last month or so. But what's interesting when the Lord says, the, the middle phrase, he esteemeth all flesh in one, and, next phrase, he that is righteous is favored of God. That's an odd juxtaposition. Huh, sounds like a contrary being proven. Sure enough, God is no respecter of persons. He treats everyone equally. He esteemeth all flesh in one. Then why would he have a chosen people? Why is there a promised land promised to certain people? It's because the righteous are favored of God. It doesn't mean he loves them more, but it does mean he's permitted to bless them more. That's the great difference. And there's no limit to his love or no, no boundaries to the, to the people he's willing to bless if they'll simply live up to the commandments that allow God to bless them. I, I hope that's making sense. It, it, it's this fascinating balance that the Lord is trying to strike there. And the Israelites are starting to recognize that themselves God favors the righteous. I need to qualify myself for those blessings by keeping the commandments of God. None of us deserve the promised land. Okay? None of us have earned heaven. But as we are trying to learn heaven, hopefully we're in a place where God can give it to us. Verse 6 then, he says, Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness. For thou art a stiff-necked people, Okay, let me say it point blank. It wasn't your righteousness, it was their wickedness. And then the reminder, remember and forget not how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt until ye came unto this place, ye have been rebellious against the Lord. I wonder if that's another one of those cautions against forgetfulness. If I make it too easy when you get into the promised land, you might forget. In fact, if you start thinking you won because you're better than them, then you'll definitely forget. You'll forget me for helping you here. You'll forget the commandments I've given you that are meant to set you apart. So don't forget. Remember and keep the law. He then goes on recounting more and more instances of Israel's murmurings, their rebellions. Notice the list. You provoked God. 
He says that in four different verses. You corrupted yourselves. You turned aside out of the way. You turned aside quickly out of the way. You sinned against the Lord. You did wickedly in the sight of the Lord. You rebelled. You believed not. You hearkened not to his voice. It's like, okay, okay, I get it. I'm sorry. It's like, well, do you get it? Are you sorry? Let me sum it all up with verse 24. Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Yikes. There's the Lord laying it out, humbling them in an effort to keep them from succumbing to pride. You're stiff-necked. Will you soften it to the point you can look up to me and bow before my presence? You're hard-hearted. Will you soften it enough I can write this law upon the fleshy tables? Oh, you can't afford to forget me. But your pride will get in the way. Your wickedness will get in the way. So let me just remind you, what a piece of work you really are. And then another reminder, verse 29. Yet they are thy people and thine inheritance, which thou broughtest out by thy mighty power and by thy stretched out arm. So yes, he loves us in spite of ourselves. It's such a funny way he ends, or just runs throughout Deuteronomy 9. Yeah, I don't know why I love you, but I do. I don't know why I put up with you, but I will. But please... Take the chance I'm giving you to repent and actually change. Chapter 10, then, he tells us, again, this is one of those moments of, let's, if we're getting lost in all of the, the, the laws, can we reduce it down to one again? We did that with the Shema, here, God, he just wants you to love him. And he's going to do it again here in chapter 10. This is all I'm asking of you. He reviews the history. We received the tablets of stone. We deposited them in the Ark of the Covenant. The Levites received the priesthood. And then he says in verse 12, Now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day, for thy good. This is for thy good. I'm not jealous in a selfish way. I'm jealous in a, in a selfless way. This is for your good. I'm just trying to prepare you so that you can receive the blessings. I'm trying to strengthen your arms so you can actually bear up under the burden of blessings that I want to pour out upon you for your good. And all I'm asking this is it. This is boil it all down back to this love God, serve God, keep God's commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments is really all, all that it is. I love what Elder Bednar has taught, that based on Moses chapter 1 verse 39, we know what God's work boils down to. It's to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. But for God to do his work, he's asking that we do ours. And in section 11 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we get a verse that is equally clear as far as what our work is. DNC 1120, Behold, this is your work, to keep my commandments, yea, with all your might, mind, and strength. That summarizes Deuteronomy 10 perfectly. In fact, it summarizes Deuteronomy perfectly. Verse 16, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. We saw circumcision as the token of the covenant way back with Abraham, Genesis chapter 17. Well, that was just a token of the real covenant that God is after. 
And so if you're going to circumcise something, pick the heart. Cut away that hard outer shell. We talked about gilded gods. Nothing on the inside, just gold on the outside. Well, interesting to think of what God sees within us. Down deep, you do have a soft heart. Down deep, you're better than you realize. If you can just cut away the outward exterior, that tough shell that keeps me from penetrating the heart to write on those fleshy tables. I worry sometimes when people claim authenticity as their justification to live a life that's less than what God intends for them. Or I'm just being authentic here. When I hear the word, I always think to myself, oh, the authentic you, which one are you talking about? Because we are authentic natural men and women, sad. But we are also authentically children of God. So which form of authenticity are you living or leaning into? You get to pick. But I love that God sees what our heart really is down deep. That's the deepest, most authentic us. And if you'll just circumcise the heart, then the, the, that authentic falsehood, I know that's an oxymoron, but that's us, then that will peel away, fall off the outside, and we can truly live into our most authentic, authentic selves. Verse 17, he adds this interesting detail. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty, a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. This is part of his jealousy again, part of his uniqueness, willingness to come close to us, if we'll come close to him. But you catch the end of it? He doesn't regard persons. In other words, I'm no respecter of persons. Wait, but I thought we were chosen. Well, if you'll choose me. And they're not chosen, right? Well, because they're not choosing me. But if you can help them choose me, then I'll choose them too. Enough choosing going on here. But then the last line, I don't take reward either. And I love that phrase because it changes or it should change our entire attitude towards the law of sacrifice that we've been studying so much. Most scholars, when they study sacrifice in ancient religions, it's a way of buying God's good graces, of bribing him. I mean, that was the reality among uh, Balaam's people, right? Balak, when he's like, well, let's, let's take you up to this mountain and offer seven bullocks and seven goats upon these seven altars and just hope that we are buying God's affection. We want him on our side, so let's bribe him a bit. But that verse changes the whole perspective. I don't take reward. But then why are we offering sacrifice? Ah, oh, I thought you'd never ask. Because of what it teaches you, it's not about what it does to change me. It's meant to change you. On the one hand, it's putting your money where your mouth is. On the one hand, it's saying, what do I really value? And am I serious enough about this thing to give up other things to get it? Hmm, that's a good wake-up call for us. And I think also it's, it's meant to be the ultimate lesson. It's meant to point us forward to Jesus Christ. And so this is not God wanting to take reward. This is God wanting to teach us truth. Sacrifice is for us, not for him. So don't ever think we're, we're paying him off or bribing him to bless us. That's not the case. Then verse 18 and 19. 
God doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. You see, don't just provide for those in need. Love them. Love them out of empathy, out of compassion. You should know how they feel because you've been in their shoes. Yours haven't worn out. Theirs do. So share with them. Then in verse 22, Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons, and now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. Another reminder of that. I am keeping my promises. Will you keep yours? Chapter 11 then, a repeat of more blessings if you'll only obey. They're commanded to love the Lord, keep his commandments. And then in verse 2, Know ye this day, for I speak not with your children, which have not known and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, his stretched out arm. Earlier, he said, I'm doing this with you, not with your parents. I already did that with them. And now he's saying, I'm not talking to your kids. I'm talking to you. Instead of looking for a generation past or a generation future, let's look at the generation present and how are you doing? What will you decide? I remember reading a book about evangelical Christianity. And this is, these are born-again Christians. And the author made the point that it's the, the born-again Christian themselves that has had this incredible experience of new life in Christ, and they just want to preserve it, hold on to it. And so they learn actions, lifestyles, commandments that help them hold on to this rebirth that they've experienced. Then they have kids. And those kids grow up in a home where that lifestyle is being lived. But the kids didn't have their own born-again experience to motivate them to want to have a lifestyle that helps facilitate it. Sometimes they struggle. Sometimes, in fact, this author said, they envy their parents. I'm doing all the same stuff you do. I'm just not feeling the stuff that you have felt. And I wish I had been born again myself instead of just being born into a family of born-agains. When I read that, I thought, that's not just an evangelical problem. That's a Latter-day Saint one, too. Uh, if you remember the great talk from conference years ago from Elder Anderson, Wilfred Anderson, about the music of the gospel versus the dance steps, that was genius. And to, to be raising our children with dance steps without really helping them come to hear the music, there's the what without the why and certainly without the who. And no wonder they're not going to want to live the what. Here, the Lord is cautioning. I'm not talking to your kids. I'm talking to you. You're having experiences. You need to obey. I do want to talk to your kids. Facilitate that. Make sure they have opportunities to feel what you felt so that they have motivation to live as you live. That's going to make the biggest difference. In verse 7, another reminder. Your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Therefore shall ye keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that ye may be strong and go in and possess the land whither ye go to possess it. If you've seen God's hand in your life, how can you not want to obey him as a result of that? In verse 10, For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence ye came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs, 
But the land whither ye go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys and drinketh water of the rain of heaven. As a result, verse 12, it's a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. That's a fascinating verse because he's comparing the land you're about to go into from the land that you left. Now, your parents compared it all the time and missed the, the leeks and the onions and the cucumbers and the fish, which came so easily in Egypt. It's the breadbasket of the ancient world. Ask Joseph in Egypt for that, right? It's the Nile and rivers just flow. In fact, in Egypt, rivers don't just flow, they flood and bring incredible nutrients to the soil, bring the water through. The flooding of the Nile is what kept Egypt the breadbasket. In fact, it's water that tends to do that, makes things grow, right? It's rivers that tend to do that most sustainably. In fact, think about it this way, because that's what I love about these verses. It's amazing to see God's strategy unfold here. It's not, the land I'm sending you, it's not going to be like Egypt. Egypt, I mean, you could water your garden with your foot. <laughs> I mean, just, yeah, dig a little trench in the mud and the water flows right down to your plants that are growing. Uh, how hard was that? Most civilizations throughout human history have grown up alongside rivers. Because rivers are, you can count on them. They just keep bringing the water. And so think of, Egypt along the Nile. Think of Mesopotamia. The word itself, Mesopotamia, means between, middle, meso. Potamia is river. So it's the middle river. It's between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And that's where these great civilizations grew up in the Fertile Crescent. Fertile because of rivers. You think of Indian civilizations along the, the Ganges. Chinese civilizations along the Yangtze. You get the Tiber in Rome and the Thames in, in London and the Seine in, in Paris and the Mississippi in the United States. But think about, think about the Mississippi. Yes, Nauvoo was there, but that wasn't, they, they, the saints weren't there by choice. And where did the Lord lead them next? Salt Lake City. Yes, there's a Jordan River, but if you've ever seen rivers in the eastern United States, you can barely call the Jordan a river in, in Utah. It's a little trickle, a little trickle. Bring some water, but not enough to really grow crops. That's why the desert had not blossomed as the rose. So what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to pray for rain. Ah, that's what the Lord is after. Why is he going to lead them to Jerusalem? There's a Jordan River there too, but it's so far away as far as elevation. You're not going down to the Jordan to bring water back up to your palace in Jerusalem, King David. Uh, you're not doing, I mean, there's a, you understand what I'm getting at? What I'm amazed at the, the geography of God is that for his, for his civilizations, he has chosen places of rain instead of places of water. Whereas in the world, we choose places of river instead of places of rain. Mind-blowing. And I love that verse to point it out. If I don't give you a river, you're going to have to rely on me. Huh? Maybe that'll help you remember. And know and trust that God will care for your land. I'm not giving you the easy way out here. So trust me. 
The chapter then comes to a close, 26. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. He's going to do that multiple times in Deuteronomy. Choice is yours. Here they are right in front of you. A blessing if ye obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I give you this day. And a curse if ye will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. It's as simple as that. Choose the right when a choice is placed before you. And here's the choices. Verse 29, it shall come to pass when the Lord thy God hath brought thee in unto the land whither thou goest to possess it, that thou shalt put the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and the curse upon Mount Ebal. And that's exactly what they're going to do once they get into the promised land. It's this amazing visual aid. A valley, a valley of decision, if you want to borrow Joel's phrase, with a mountain on either side, Ebal and Gerizim. We'll see later in Deuteronomy, as it's described in more in depth, that you'll have six tribes on one hillside and six tribes on the other. This is the, this is the pep rally we got to participate in in high school. Uh, or people on opposite sides of the, the stadium at a football game or of the arena in a basketball game, and they're yelling at each other, and there's curses from one side and blessings from the other, and whoa, I guess I'm caught in the middle with a choice to make. Uh-huh. And we're trying to make the choice as crystal clear and easy, simple as, as we can. Which side do you want? I'm going to set before you a blessing and a curse. Which would you prefer? Now, before we make the choice, let me teach you a few more things along the way. Remember this rhetorical power, persuasion through the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 12, he'll talk more about worship. And among other things, there's right ways and right places and wrong ways and wrong places to perform that worship. So you've got to destroy all the Canaanite places of worship. Just like we're not going to marry into their families, we're certainly not going to worship their gilded gods. What do we do instead? Verse 5, Unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there. Even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. He repeats it in 13 and 14. Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes. There thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. Sometimes God does put a pin in the map, uh, put a finger on it and say that's where it has to be. Independence, Missouri, that's the center place. Jerusalem, the place where my, I will place my name. Specifically, it's going to be the temple, which not only says holiness to the Lord, but also says the house of the Lord. That is the place of God's name. And it's a place that he names as the location where he wants to place his name upon us. Will we be willing to go there to receive what he's offering? In verse 8, ye shall not do after all the things which ye do here this day. Be better than that. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. That's such a great verse to describe moral relativism, which is the Kool-Aid people drink in the 21st century. Now you, just, you do you, is what our youth and young adults have grown up hearing around them. That there's no absolute truth. There's no fixed right and wrong. It's all just relative. And that is the common coin of the realm. To think otherwise, oh, you're scandalously intolerant. You're pushing people to something that goes against their authentic selves. Oh, careful with that. We'll see more of that in the book of Judges. 
Are we just doing whatever's right in our own eyes? Or are we doing what's right in the eyes of him with perfect sight and perfect knowledge? After all, verse 9, Ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. I mean, you're getting better and you're getting closer and we're just about ready to cross the river, but you're not there yet. And so don't get too big for your britches. Don't think that you can outthink God. Realize that I'm not quite where I want to be. And so I should probably just keep following instructions. My junior year of high school, my coaches would never trust me with any kind of play calling on the football field. Uh, you haven't proven yourself. But by my senior year, they took some advice when I said, this play will work. And we tried it and it did. There was something about growing into that. And the Israelites aren't there yet. Neither are we. Verse 30 then, Take heed to your, thyself that thou be not snared, there's that word again, by following them after that they be destroyed from before you. And that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Mm, no. Again, as we grow up in God and get more stable and secure in our own faith, then that's the perfect time for interfaith dialogue. A chance to meet our neighbors and honor Moabites and Ammonites and, uh, and Edomites. But as for now, no, don't even inquire after their gods. In the stages of faith, as we go from creation to fall to atonement, it's in the atonement stage that we can truly bring all things together into one great whole. In the creation stage, it's a little premature to be exploring things when you don't even know what you already have. And sadly, in stage two, in the fall stage, you kind of have chucked what you had from the first stage. No, we've got to find a better balance here. But here it's interesting, at that stage of Israelite existence, don't even ask what they were doing among the Canaanite deities, because chances are you'll fall to that lower common denominator. Okay, Stay, stay true to me, I'm true to you. Speaking of idolatry, because that's what, he, what he's warning them against, chapter 13 reminds them that idolatry is a capital offense. It's what's killing you, and it's what will cause the, the conquest of Canaan for those that are already in it. So, chapter 13, verse 1, If there arise among you a prophet, or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, it might even work. Think of Balaam here whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Interesting passage there. Some people might get it right. There might be prophets or dreamers of dreams and they give you signs and wonders and these miraculous things that you think, wow, they must, they must be on the right side of things. Look at what they can do. Okay, but where are they leading you? There's more than one kind of fruit by which you can know them. And if they're leading you away from God, then know that that's, that's not a true prophet. Those aren't dreams worth dreaming yourself. We live in an interesting day of false prophets, of celebrities and stars and social media influencers that do some amazing things, but also sometimes point us in wrong directions. 
and we need to be wise. Even those dreamers of dreams, I think of inventors and innovators, and technology is truly a miracle to behold. Unfortunately, sometimes it's technology that is moving us away from the teachings of God. And so we need to be careful with that too. Which do we love more? True gods or false gods? True prophets or false prophets? In verse 6, even if it's your brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, if they entice thee secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, then you can't follow. No matter who it is that's leading you astray. That's, that's a tough one. No matter who it is, don't consent, don't hearken. He even goes on, don't pity, don't spare, don't conceal. This is a capital crime deserving of the death penalty. Yikes. In fact, in the New Testament, when Jesus says, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. Better to go to heaven with one eye than to hell with two. Talk about desperate times calling for desperate measures. Like, seriously? Pluck it out? Get rid of it? Uh-huh. Now, it's one thing to think of that in terms of inanimate objects or external influencers that I'm not really connected to. Yeah, I can get rid of that channel or turn off the internet or oh, end that subscription or whatever it might be. I'll, I'll go ahead and pluck that eye out. But in the Mark version of that warning, there's a Joseph Smith translation that, boy, does it clarify something. JST of Mark chapter 9, how's this? Verse 40. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. And then the Lord explains it. Or if thy brother offend thee, and confess not, and forsake not, he shall be cut off. In 42, again, if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. But then he explains it. For he that is thy standard, by whom thou walkest, see why he called it a foot, if he become a transgressor, he shall be cut off. Or verse 46, if thine eye, let me explain this, which seeth for thee, him that is appointed to watch over thee, to show thee light, even if he becomes a transgressor and offends thee, pluck him out. You understand now why the Lord would use body parts as the metaphor here? Eyes and hands and feet. Because that's a part of you. Members of the body of Christ, body parts are, are people that you're connected to. These are brothers and sons and daughters and wives and husbands and friends of your own soul. And to even have to sever some relationships, that's really hard. But would you rather sever your relationship with God? Now notice what was added there in the JST. If they confess not and forsake not. So repentance is always an option. Which suggests that we should be crying repentance constantly. And if we'll do, all can be well. And we don't have to cut anything off. We'll just cut away those evil influences. Not the people that have now changed themselves. He adds to that in verse 14, that if you hear that people are trying to draw others away from God, then shalt thou inquire and make search and ask diligently and behold, if it be truth and the thing certain, that such abomination is wrought among you, then yes, the death penalty will be enforced. But like that verse says, you have to be absolutely sure. This is not just, oh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, willy-nilly. It is, are you sure? Absolutely positive, because 
if we're trying to finally seek justice here, punishing the innocent is the ultimate act of injustice, and we can't go there. So as harsh as Deuteronomy 13 might sound, there is that very careful approach to this kind of capital consequence. you got to be sure. So we're crying repentance. We're giving people every chance. We are making sure that they really are guilty and, and are kind of in-your-face kind of rebelliousness. That's the kinds of consequences we saw back in the book of Numbers recently. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 14, he adds again this reiteration. You've got to be different so that you can be, make a difference. And while we're talking about differences, reach out to those who are different from you. Do it in a way that you can bring them in so that they can be one with you. In verse 2, the first reminder, Thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. No wonder we have to avoid becoming like everyone else. You need to be different in how you live. This chapter talks about avoiding the practices of the surrounding nations. You need to be different in the things that you eat. This chapter repeats a lot of those kosher laws. You need to be different in how you spend your money. And this chapter talks about tithing. I mean, you want to make a difference? Then, yeah, have some dietary restrictions. I'll call it a word of wisdom. You want to be different? Then make some economic changes. And, yeah, tithing, how you'll spend your money and how you refuse to. Make some life changes. Do different habits. Live a different lifestyle. And people will notice. Now, he does say in terms of the tithing factor, if you live too far away from the temple, because that's the place that I've placed my name, then, verse 25, turn whatever you were going to give, that was tithing in kind, turn it into money. Bind up the money in thine hand and go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. So he's even giving them some insight on what to do if I really want to keep that law, but... It's impossible to do it where I am. I can't bring this sheep or that ox to the temple. I'm too far away. Okay, then sell it, turn it into money, and then that, that keeps really, really well. Next time you're down in Jerusalem, you can offer that. I've heard amazing stories of people that were in war-torn countries, in Europe, for example, World War II, that had no priesthood leaders to whom they could give their tithing. And so they just keep putting away 10% until eventually a day came when they could give it. And that, that's amazing faith to me. That's incredible obedience. It's almost like he's saying, don't look for ways to get around the laws of God. Look for ways to keep it. Even if you have to think outside the box a bit, uh, let's, let's make obedience our, our aim rather than our obstacle. Speaking of tithing then, he then says in 28 and 29, and this is where we're bringing other people into our own experience, at the end of three years, thou shalt bring forth all the tithes of thine increase, the same year, and shall lay it up within thy gates. And then notice what you do with it. And the Levite, because he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, which are within thy gates, shall come, and shall eat, and be satisfied, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hand, which thou doest. I love that verse. It's taking all of the marginalized. Now, you wouldn't think to include the Levites there, but they have no land inheritance, right? They are at the mercy of people contributing to the, the tabernacle or to the house of God. And speaking of people that are at the mercy of the goodness of others, 
add to the list the widow and the orphan and the stranger, foreigner, refugee, to the poor. And at the end of every three years, bring all those tithes that you haven't brought in already and have a feast like nothing you've seen before, or at least like nothing these people have experienced. That's why I love that it's not just let them come. People that are constantly probably being told to go away, you know, it's come. People that seldom have enough to eat, now it's come and eat. And more than just eat, come and eat and be satisfied. When you're living hand to mouth and paycheck to paycheck, even when you're grateful that you get to eat at all, you're seldom eating at the level of true satisfaction. I couldn't have another bite. Well, get them to that point. At least at this moment, help them feel fully satisfied. And then chapter 15 gives us a whole chapter on how to do it. I love Deuteronomy chapter 15. You want to care for the poor? Here's the chapter to study. He'll start with this Sabbath year idea. We talked about the third year bringing the tithes. Well, how about the seventh year? Verse 1, at the end of every seven years, thou shalt make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lendeth aught unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. That is such a powerful phrase. The Lord's release. We talked about this with the piercing of a return missionary's ear, right? That if you have a servant uh, for six years, you have to let them go on the seventh. No perpetual slavery. Well, same with debts. If someone owes you money, then on the seventh year, let it go. This is I mean, the Jubilee year on the 50th year. Everything goes, well, how about every seven? Just release it. I don't know if there's a better word for what the Lord is always offering us. Freedom from our bondage, forgiveness from our sins, covering for our nakedness. It's all the Lord's release. I release you from that. I release you from your lesser self. I release you from the chains of sin. I release you from the bonds of, of, of addiction. I, I even release you from any kind of debt you owe me. Because I don't want you serving me the rest of your life out of some kind of obligation. Do you have to pay me back? No. It's a gift. And I hope that you'll serve me as a result of it, just out of love, not trying to pay back something, because then it, it just changes the relationship in, in ways I don't want it changed. I want this to be gift and gift alone. In verse 4, there's one exception to this, and that's interesting. Save when there shall be no poor among you, for the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it. Now talk about an odd exception. Always provide for the poor, except when there's no poor among you. Now didn't Jesus say in the New Testament, the poor, you will always have the poor with you? Well, I guess there is an exception to that. For us, it would be the millennial day, right? When we finally have achieved Zion upon the earth, and there's one heart, one mind, and dwelling in righteousness to the point where there is no poor among us. You see, what keeps the poor among us so often is that we're not one of mind or heart. We're certainly not yet dwelling in that level of righteousness that we can truly 
give as we've been given, and consecrate our all so that we can be one with each other and one in God. To me, there's a whole preview of coming events and attractions here. Someday there'll be no poor among you. There'll be no debts to forgive. Till then, be kinder. Till then, be more generous. Till then, keep these commandments. In verse 7, here's one of them. If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. Notice the Lord is concerned about both the hand and the heart. It's one thing to withhold the hand. Like, nope, I'm not going to give you anything. But even if you give the hand, but aren't giving the heart, there's something missing there. And God is after both body parts. Okay? Clean hands and a pure heart, we'll see in the book of Psalms. Uh, and God wants both. The external, there's our hands, but the internal, there's our heart. What's our motivation? Because if our heart is hardened, no wonder our hand is never going to be stretched out. No wonder it's never going to open to those. But what's interesting, the way he phrases it, don't harden your heart and don't shut your hand, which suggests that the default position, if he's saying, don't shut your hand, then it must be open already. Otherwise, it'd be like, open your hand. No, it's just that don't shut it. And if he's saying, don't harden your heart, then currently it must be soft. This goes back to this, what's, which authentic version of myself should I be leaning into? And here's the authentic good. The authentic good is a soft heart and an open hand and a, a desire to meet the needs of those around you. It, we are one another's keepers. We are our brothers and sisters keeper. And so don't harden your heart. Don't shut your hand. Be the best version of yourself, the better angels of our natures. In verse 8, But thou shalt open thine hand wide, unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Open thine hand wide. We already saw it was open. Don't shut it. Well, yeah, okay, it's open. But can you open it a little wider? Can you be a little more generous than the absolute minimum to try to keep your conscience from haunting you? I'm amazed at those who give so generously of fast offerings, for example, that not only are they helping the poor feel fed for a day, but they're, they sense in, a, in their own small way what it feels like not, to not be able to do everything they want. That's what C.S. Lewis taught. Be generous to the point there's certain things you just can't do for yourself. Don't run faster than you have strength. King Benjamin warns us about that in the context of giving to the poor. But, but run. Give. Open the hand wide. And when he uses the phrase sufficient for his need, I hope that we remember that phrase. I hope we know where we've heard it repeatedly. You know, I used to focus on the word sufficient. Like that's it. It just needs to be sufficient. It doesn't have to be overabundant. It just needs to be sufficient. And I thought about the word need. Like, ah, yes, we have sufficient for our needs it's not wants, it's not luxuries, it's, it's the stuff that matters most, and we have sufficient to meet those.
Awesome. Those are great words to focus on. But as I've grown older, it's the pronouns that I think mean the most to me. We have sufficient for our needs. Because that's collective consecration. That's admitting I might not have sufficient for my need, but together we do. And if you'll be generous, my needs will be met, and vice versa. You might not have sufficient for your needs, but we collectively do. And I see that need and want to meet it, not only out of a full hand, but out of an abundant heart. And that's what God is working on. It's what he's aiming at. We see it over and over through the rest of this chapter. In verse 9, Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, Oh, the seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him not. And he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. You see, that's the danger of, of this seven-year debt release. Wait a minute, if I loan it to him now, he's not going to have time to pay me back before the Lord's release comes. And then I just stand to lose it. That's not, that's not wise business practice. So, nope, sorry. And the Lord's like, oh, you evil I, you wicked heart, come on, just give. Without any thought of reward or return on investment, if you lose temporally, I'll make it up to you, spiritually. So just let it go. It's okay. I think sometimes we try to justify our lack of generosity in any number of ways. That's the way that, they, that the Lord was getting at for them. Don't be using the, the imminent year of the Lord's release as a justification for non-generosity on your part. What are ours? We don't think of the Lord's release, but sometimes we think, oh, they're just going to use it on things that they shouldn't be using it on. Or they deserve to be in their circumstance. They put themselves there. Again, go reread Mosiah and see what King Benjamin had to say about that. Oh, be, be careful. And may we not justify our lack of generosity. Instead, can we, again, look for ways to live it instead of ways to deny it. Okay? In fact, I've even heard Dave Ramsey, the great uh, financial guru. My, I lived in Nashville for eight years. You can't not know Dave Ramsey if you're from Nashville. That's where he's from. Uh, and he said at, at times, if you are going to give, he said, be careful about loaning money to family. It changes the relationship. It's just super awkward. And if you're going to loan money to family, just give it to them instead. And I, I wonder about this uh, in this verse. There seems to be a sense, if you can't handle forgiving a debt, then don't make a loan. Just make it a gift. You understand that? I think Dave Ramsey would, would like that. And here it is in, in Deuteronomy that you're going to forgive it on the seventh year anyway. I hope you can handle it. If you can't, there's something wicked in your heart and something evil in your eye. And that's something that needs, that's about you, not about them. So work on that. So if you can't handle forgiving debts, then stay clear of debts and focus on gifts instead. So, so much better. Verse 10 suggests that. Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him, because that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works and in all that thou puttest thine hand unto. 
Again, it's not just actions, it's attitudes the Lord's after. So give it to Him and quit being so sad about it. Okay? <laughs> Cheer up. Let it go. Cheer up. Get over this wicked heart, this evil eye, and just be generous. And notice what He said at the, the promise. I'll bless thee in all thy works. He might not owe you anything, but if I owe you something, who would you rather have you, who would you rather have to repay you? Okay? All that they can give you is whatever they have to, to offer. Me, on the other hand, all that the Father hath shall be given unto thee? Yeah. Not that I'm making God my debtor, but if I can release others from their own debt, then it's the goodness of my heart that's doing it, and it's the goodness of God's heart that's blessing me. In verse 11, For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Wait a minute, I thought you just said there might be times when there aren't any. Well, they won't cease out of the land until you change your evil, wicked heart. Okay? The poor shall never cease. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide. Unto whom? Unto thy brother to thy poor, to thy needy in thy land. That's what the Lord said in 3517 when he's asking them to bring all of the sick and the afflicted. But the way it's described, they did go forth with their sick and their afflicted and their lame, their blind, their dumb. That makes all the difference. Instead of looking at my possessions as my own, Look at the needy as my own, my brother, my poor, my needy. And it makes it so, it's almost like you get to pick what do you want to attach the possessive pronoun to? Because if it's your stuff and those undeserving poor, then I know what's going to end up with that one. But if it's just the stuff and my brothers and sisters, in need of help, then what, what can I give you? My hand and heart are open wide. Last thought on this, one last kind of gut check, heart check. On that seventh year, when you free your servants, there's the pierced ear we saw back in, in Exodus 21, you're supposed to give them great gifts on their departure. Not just, okay, fine, you can leave now, but oh, let me pile you high because you've been such a wonderful servant these last six years. And then verse 18, I love this. It shall not seem hard unto thee when thou sendest him away free from thee. It's like what he said back in verse 10. Your heart better not be grieved, that wicked heart of yours. No, be happy about it. Here, don't, it's like fasting and don't disfigure your face so it looks like you're fasting. Give, and don't make it look like it hurts. Be just so generous and so glad to be that generous. Heart and hand is what he's aiming, right? Action and attitude. Are we giving God both? Chapter 16 of Deuteronomy then, just a quick little reminder of the pilgrimage festivals. Verse 16, Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose. This chapter repeatedly talks about the place. Six different times, in fact. Uh, the three times a year you're supposed to come in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's Passover. In the Feast of Weeks, there's Pentecost. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, there's Sukkot. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Every man shall give as he is able, 
according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee. So come with whatever you have to offer. Come to the place, the temple primarily, and whatever you can give, give it. Freely you've received, freely you shall give, and what better place to give our best than in the house of the Lord, a house where he places his name upon us. And then verse 21, Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make thee. We'll see this with Canaanite worship. They call them Asherah, or the groves. And it's these sites of pagan worship. And so here, don't, don't allow counterfeits to get too close to the real thing. Don't surround the temple with false trees of life when there's already a tree of life inside. There's that candlestick. Oh, shedding light to all within the house. There's coming to the throne of grace. You don't need falsehood surrounding that. Okay, where again, we're trying to make very clear the differences between good and evil, Zion and Babylon, right and wrong. Deuteronomy 17, then, we shift some gears. And hopefully we've learned to be humble toward the poor back in chapter 15. Well, how about those leaders? Leaders especially might have a hard time with humility. So let's talk to them for a little bit and remind them to be as meek as meek Moses has been. Verse 16, we're talking about any time you want to have a king. We'll see that in the days of Samuel. First, make sure he's not a foreigner. Make sure he's a brother. Stay true to the house of Israel. But then this caution, he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. That's an easier way to get rich quick. Go back to places where you can water with your foot, right? Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, and neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Oh, I wish King Solomon had been wise enough to remember Deuteronomy 17. He fell prey to all of those things. Multiplying horses to himself, multiplying wives to connect to all these foreign leaders and unfortunately foreign gods, multiplying silver and gold. We'll see that in the books of Kings that, yes, he spends seven years building God a house, but then he spends 13 building himself one. No, Solomon, I thought you were wiser than that. So Israel, from the, from the get-go, even before we come into the promised land, be careful about those who lead you. Make sure they're willing to be led by the Lord. Another caution in verse 18. It shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. Even kings have to know that there is a king of kings above them. Even the lofty need to bow before the law of God. No one is above the law, and yet so often those that have multiplied silver and gold, those that have risen in the ranks, think that they're above the expectations that others have to meet. They think the law is beneath them. This is 
Roman conquering generals riding back triumphantly into Rome with a slave beside them in the chariot whispering in their ear, remember, you will die. Huh. You've got a laurel crown and crowds of adoring fans lining the streets, but they're whispering in your ear, you're no better than they are. You're as mortal as, as the people you just conquered in the battlefield. I get a similar sense here at the end of Deuteronomy 17. And needing, not a servant, but in this case, your master, whispering in your ear constantly the words of the law. If you're important, if you're a leader, if pride sometimes is your problem, you can't afford to miss Scripture study. Because it's that word, read therein all the days of thy life. Fear the Lord, keep his words. Don't let your heart be lifted up thinking that you, they no longer apply to you. They always will. Let Solomon be our cautionary tale with that. Now, one other detail that I skipped over in chapter 17, I just wanted to point out quickly. Back in verse 6 and 7, he's talking again about you have to be absolutely sure before you condemn someone. So there need to be witnesses. And this is a great verse about the law of witnesses. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. Then this other detail. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. See, not just the evil of the crime that was committed, but also the potential evil of false accusation. That's why there has to be more than one witness. And that's why the witnesses themselves will be the first to execute the intended penalty. Because hopefully that will scare away false witnesses. It's like, yikes, I don't want to actually have to be the one that does it because it's not actually true what I've been saying. That, that should give us pause. That also actually gives us an insight into Laban's uh, death at the hands of Nephi. Because what had Laban done? All kinds of things that were worthy of death. Threatening those brothers with death. There's eye for an eye. Stealing all of their possessions. Oh, living a life against the commandments of God. And who's witness of that? Well, Nephi and his brothers. There's more than one. And who is first to lay his hands upon guilty Laban? One of those witnesses, Nephi himself. It's amazing that the execution of Laban in 1 Nephi 4 goes, follows along exactly the law of Moses which would have been the judicial expectation for Nephi's time period. It's really cool. We'll see another one of those later on. Now, Deuteronomy 18, let's spend a moment on true and false priests and true and false prophets. We saw false, false dreamers and, and prophets before in terms of they might have all the tricks of the trade, but if they're leading you away from God, then do not follow. Something similar here. So chapter 18, we've learned about supporting the priests and the Levites out of the sacrifices. He outlaws false priests. He calls them enchanters, charmers, consulters with familiar spirits. And then he prophesies of the coming of the high priest of good things to come. There's these false priests, but there will be a true one. And he says in verse 15, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Someone like Moses. Unto him ye shall hearken. 
That's an amazing prophecy. Peter will quote it in Acts chapter 3. Stephen will quote it in Acts chapter 7. Nephi will quote it in 1 Nephi 22. Jesus himself quotes it in 3 Nephi chapter 20. Oh, that's the, maybe the best one. It's like, I'm the one that was referring to. Okay, a prophet like unto Moses. Well, let's keep things in proper perspective. He was a prophet like unto me. Okay, let's keep our types and anti-types straight, shall we? The angel Moroni, by the way, quotes that same passage to Joseph Smith as a 17-year-old, saying, that day is on its way, but Christ will be the prophet like unto Moses, delivering his people, oh, the Passover lamb himself, and then the prophet who's carrying them to the promised land. It's amazing. But that's the true. Here's now the false. Verse 20. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. So just because there are true prophets, beware of the false ones. You could say the same thing in reverse. Just because there have been false prophets, wouldn't that suggest there are also true ones? And the best way to tell is, do they reflect the ultimate true prophet that is like unto Moses? How much like the Savior are they? How much like the Savior's teachings are their teachings? Or are they just presuming to speak words, putting words into the mouth of God? Actually, a great scene in Joseph Smith's time period where Nancy Towles, who is this itinerant evangelical preacher, is going around sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ as she knows it, and she meets Joseph Smith. And she's shocked and horrified that anyone would presume. That's her word. She said to Joseph, are you not ashamed of such pretensions, like these pretendings, you who are no more than any plowboy of our land? To which Joseph simply replied, ah, the gift has returned back again, as in former times, to illiterate fishermen. I know I'm nothing. I don't pretend to any kind of individual greatness. I'm not presuming to speak for God. I'm just speaking for him because God has chosen me as he did those illiterate fishermen in the New Testament. Me, just a plowboy, sure enough, but one who has set his hand to the plow to serve God and will not look back at lesser things. This is an interesting verse because part of our challenge is how do we know if it's a true prophet? Again, how close are they to God? That's a good measuring stick. But in verse 21, even the people ask that question. If thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? That's a great question. Uh, well, okay, the, the true ones will speak true words from God. The false ones will speak false words. Okay, but how do I know what came from God and what didn't? Hmm. Now notice verse 22 is the answer. And I've had students ask similar questions. How do we place faith in fallibility? Our prophets don't claim to be infallible. So how do we, how do we have faith when, they're, when we know they're not perfect and they admit that themselves? Good question. Verse 22, here, how's this for an answer? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. Okay, that's a good answer. But does that still, that still kind of leaves me waiting and perhaps waiting interminably because how do I know how much time has passed? 
before I can really say, the thing has not followed. And in fact, here's another tricky part. What if some things do follow and other things don't? Then I'm really confused, like, oh, true prophet here, but not a true prophet there. Well, that's actually a legitimate possibility. There have been some who jump on Joseph Smith and say, oh, he said this and it never happened, so he's definitely a false prophet. Okay, but what about these things he has said that did come to pass? Doesn't that, by the same token, mean he's a true prophet? By the way, it's not just against Joseph Smith. Anti-Christians have said similar things of Jesus and said, oh, but this particular prophecy didn't come to pass. Well, maybe not the way that you thought it was supposed to be. Is there some wiggle room there? But even with this idea of, okay, passage of time, so time vindicates the prophets, that's helpful. But what if I live before the vindication? The other issue, what if they're right sometimes and wrong other times? So it's less a matter of a false prophet and maybe a true prophet that wasn't speaking as a prophet when he said those things? Was he presuming to speak for God? Or is that all that prophets are ever allowed to do? Or does a prophet ever get his own mouth back on occasion? And sometimes says things that were inspired by the person rather than inspired by God. We see examples of that throughout scripture and church history as well. Which leaves us with this as our best answer. Doctrine and Covenants, section 68, verse 4. Speaking of prophets, whatsoever they shall speak, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, that's the caveat, shall be scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, the mind of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the power of God unto salvation. So how do I know when it's true prophecy? When they're not just presuming to speak for God, it's when they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost to say it. Okay, great, but you're still just kicking the can down. How do I know when they're truly moved by the Holy Ghost? That's the question. It's when you are too. And when you're resonating on that same frequency, are you in tune with the same source? Are you worthy of the same Spirit? And is the Spirit that has moved upon them moving upon you as well? Remember Meek Moses Oh, would that all of God's people were prophets and had the Spirit of the Lord upon them. That would change everything. You wouldn't need an infallible prophet. And that's good since you can't have one anyway. You would feel a little less fallible yourself. And that's what God is after, helping us grow up in Him. Now, chapter 19 Deuteronomy continues with a repetition of some of the civil law. Remember, we're giving you a second chance for this rising generation to learn it. Certain cities of refuge are designated for people guilty of involuntary manslaughter. We saw that earlier too. Uh, extradition is required for someone who's faking it, and they really are guilty of murder, so you can't just take advantage of things that you don't, uh, that you don't, don't apply to you. And then verse 6, Lest the avenger of the blood pursue the slayer, while his heart is hot. That's a phrase we didn't see in the earlier version. I, I, I just love the phrase. So repeating this about refuge cities, we just, people need a place or a time to cool down. And so if your heart is hot, make sure there's some distance. Send people to a, a room of refuge in your house. If, if the burden and the cumbrance and the strife have gotten you to a point where you're losing your cool. Okay, parents? 
leaders, let some time pass before you rush to judgment or jump to conclusions. It will help you in your judgment to make sure that it's righteous. Uh, so careful when your heart is hot. Allow your emotions to subside. Another element added here in, section, or in chapter 19, he repeats the law of witnesses. Has to be two or three, just like we saw before, but then adds that in cases of false accusation, this is really important. Remember, that's what, why we need two or three witnesses. Uh, but then this, verse 18, the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. In a way, it's like this weird reverse golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Well, in this case, for false witnesses, do to them what they intended to do to somebody else. We're trying to eliminate false prophets and false teachers and here false witnesses. So we're going to need multiple witnesses. That would help. But what if they're all in cahoots with each other? Well, if it ever turns out that you were wrong, then guess what? We will do to you what you intended to do to the person you were falsely accusing. Remember I pointed out in the Nephi-Laban story, it follows perfectly Mosaic law to the point that Nephi is the witness and he's first to lay his hands upon the guilty. Well, one of the things that makes Laban guilty of death among all of these attempted murders and so forth is the first experience he has with Laman. When Laman comes and asks Laban, can we have the plates? Notice what Laban says to him. He says, you are a thief and I will kill you. Now, Laman may have been a lot of things. He had some issues, right? But we have no evidence that he was ever a thief. So Laban just falsely accused Laman of something. I'm not here to steal your plates. I came forthrightly and asked you for them. Round two, we'll actually try to purchase them. I'm not a thief. So that's a false accusation. And what was the penalty that Laban was trying to inflict upon Laman? Death. You're a thief and I will kill you. Well, I'm not a thief, so that accusation comes back to bite you, Laban. Hmm, interesting. So another reason that Laban was punishable by death. I mean, you can take inspiration even out of it, even though it's full. First Nephi 4 is full of God walking Nephi through this. But even if you just took Nephi to court, he'd get off scot-free. Because according to the law of his day, he was simply executing justice and judgment. Love that. One last thing in verse 20, 21. Those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. Thy eye shall not pity, life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And that summarizes all of these, oh, condemnations for civil infractions. It was a chance, again, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, so this is a lower law than what we're used to. I'm, I'm glad we've grown beyond. But this is justice, firmly established in law. And what's interesting here is it's a visible reminder to everyone else the consequences of sin. Now that can be taken to an extreme. And public shaming, whether that was the the pillory or the post, whether that was public hangings and things like that, uh, public crucifixions in the Roman period, 
oh, social media, media crucifixions that sometimes people go through with public shaming today. Oh, we need to be more careful, more, more higher than that. But what's interesting here in that time period, this does serve as a public warning and a cautionary tale so that no one else wants to commit these kinds of evils. Well, if those are rules of life, chapter 20 then shifts to some rules of war. And he says in verse 1, When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots, and a people more than thou, so, uh oh, I'm afraid. Well, don't be. Be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. How's that for horses and chariots? Let not thy heart faint. Fear not. Do not tremble. Neither ye be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. We sing it every time we turn to how firm a foundation. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. Have, have we not seen that throughout history? Ancient as well as modern? Ah, don't, don't faint. Fear not. But then some other rules that are interesting. Verse 5. The officer shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house, and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. So there are going to be some reasons where someone might be exempt from having to go off to war. And having a new house is one. It's interesting where it's, no, you deserve to enjoy the fruits of those labors before you put your life in jeopardy. Uh, how about another one in verse 6? What man is he that hath planted a vineyard and hath not yet eaten of it? Or in 7, what man is there that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? If you fast forward to Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, he adds another wrinkle to that. When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war. Neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year and shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. In our day, we talk about maternity leave. Thankfully, we finally got around to adding paternity leave. Thank you. That would have been nice. Uh, but in those days, there was even marriage leave, which I find fascinating. To put into perspective just how important to society a successful marriage was. Let's give you a whole year. We sometimes joke that the first year is the hardest. Well, let's cut them some slack then, okay? Uh, can you imagine if the year you got married, for a year you didn't have to work, you didn't have to go to war, you didn't have to go to school, you could just spend time together. That's a honeymoon stage, right? Wouldn't that be nice? And truly deepen that relationship and cement it on solid footings so that now you can raise children in righteousness. Now you can contribute to society at large. That would be nice. But it is interesting with these, these passages, there are some reasons you might be excused from coming. Now, Jesus knows Deuteronomy 20 really well, because when he gives the, the parable of the marriage of the king's son, that's the Matthew title. In the Luke version, it's called the parable of the great supper. But notice what happens. This is when the king is having a feast, a wedding feast for his son. The crown prince is ready to come into his own and this wedding feast needs to be supplied with guests. Now, the king had already sent out invitations before, but when it came actual time to come to the wedding feast, all kinds of people come up with 
reasons, they would say. We would call it excuses as to why I can't come. Well, please excuse me. See if these sound familiar. Luke chapter 14, verse 18 through 20. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, Ah, oh, I have bought a piece of ground. I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, Ah, oh, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, that's like textbook Deuteronomy 20. I have reasons why I shouldn't have to go off to war, or in this case, even go off to, to honor the king and his son. I've got too much work to do on the land. I've got a new car, a new yoke of oxen I want to test drive. I've got, I just got married. And I mean, two times in Deuteronomy, it says I'm off the hook for at least a year. Can you just excuse me, please? Oh, what kinds of excuses? That's the irony. They actually had a leg to stand on. Do we? Or do we at least try to find justifiable reasons why I don't yet want to come unto Christ? I don't want yet to prepare myself for the wedding feast, to put on my wedding garment and come, prepared, fully clothed and covered, to welcome the Lamb, the King of Kings. So interesting. A few last things in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8. The officers shall speak for, further unto the people, and they shall say, what man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. You see, that's the one final exception to the rule. As far as enlistments are concerned, and the draft, and you've got to come to be able to fight for Israel. Don't come if you're busy with other things, and there's a legitimate reason. But don't even come if you're afraid. That's how this chapter began, right? Don't be afraid, don't faint. God is with you. But if you don't believe that, we learned that a generation ago. The fear of the ten spies was contagious, and it spread throughout the rest of Israel until behind every tent flap they were accusing God of hating them. We cannot let that happen. So only the brave need apply. Come. We need that. We'll see this in two weeks in the book of Judges when Gideon is told by God, live Deuteronomy 20, ask the fearful to go. To which Gideon, I'm surprised he didn't actually say it out loud, but I guarantee he thought it. Does that mean I can leave? Because I'm scared to death. <laughs> no, that doesn't apply to you, Gideon. You're my judge. You're the deliverer here. I'll get you up to speed. But two-thirds of his army goes home because they're scared to death. We cannot afford, again, attitudes are contagious and we cannot afford to spread fear or doubt or discouragement. We can be honest and we can be open, but we can also hold on to faith and hope and, and courage, trusting that God will be with us. That, thankfully, is contagious as well. Haven't you ever been rallied the troops by some amazing speech from your coach at halftime? or from the prophet in conference, or a local leader that just has more courage than we, I'm grateful for that. Last thing, verse 10. When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. I, I'm afraid we're going to lose sight of that next week, just assuming that these bloodthirsty Israelites are going off to commit genocide throughout the land of Canaan. 
No, renounce war, proclaim peace is what the Lord says in the Doctrine and Covenants. And we get a preview of that here in Deuteronomy of all places. Proclaim peace unto it. But here he says, if they refuse and choose to fight you, we saw that as they were journeying towards the promised land. And hey, we just, we'll pay you for anything we take. We don't want to mess with you at all. And like, whatever. And they attack. And then, okay, now we have to fight back. And they all get destroyed as the Israelites have been led by God in all of this. They're told by the end of chapter 20, though, if you're fighting a distant enemy outside the promised land, and they won't heed your warnings as you're publishing peace, then yes, fight. You'll, have to, you'll end up killing the men. Do not kill the women and children. We're trying to do a live and let live as much as we possibly can. However, in the promised land, if you're fighting those nations that have gotten to a degree of iniquity, where they are guilty of capital crimes, sins, and are now ready to receive capital punishment, then no mercy there. They must be utterly destroyed. And again, that's hard for our modern hearts to wrap around. And it should be. That's good on us. But verse 18, why utter destruction? That they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. There are lines we cannot cross. So at least for now, it will be justice before mercy. It will be walls before windows. It will be bars before drawbridges. There has to be security before there is openness. But once we're secure, yes, we can open the gates. We'll see that in the New Testament and beyond. Chapter 21, interesting chapter. This one deals with unsolved murders and family law. Okay? So part of this second law, Deuteronomy, is to help us navigate even these issues. They're told that if you find a dead body somewhere out in the field, for example, but there's no murderer that you can identify, then what do we do with that? Because justice has not been served and we don't even know how to serve justice. So here's the way. The elders and judges from the nearest city, if it's out in the countryside, what city's closest, go there and bring out the elders and judges from that town and have them bring a cow with them. Okay. Verse four, the elders of the, of the city shall bring down the heifer unto a rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown. And they shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. Now this is odd, like so many rituals are in the Old Testament, right? But let's put our symbolism glasses on and picture what's happening here. The, uh, the heifer is going to be slain, so that sounds like a sacrificial animal, right? But they're out in a rough valley, not eared, not sown. Nobody's planted it. Oh, so it looks like there are no human fingerprints on this territory, right? Now, they don't know anything about fingerprints back then, but you understand what I'm getting at? There is this rough-hewn sort of, ah, we don't know what's going on here. There's no evidence that that points to a culprit. We have a dead body lying out in the field. So let's bring an animal. And in some ways, we will ritually reenact what happened. We'll commit the murder ourselves in a way. We're going to go out in a place that doesn't show any human fingerprints, that's just kind of out there wild, untraceable. And we will slay something that didn't deserve it. So we're now the guilty parties. We elders and judges of this nearest town. But then verse 6, 
all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. In a way, this reminds me of the trial of jealousy that we saw before. That strange one where the woman has to drink the bitter water and then her thigh will rot or her belly will swell. And we talked about like, that sounds like, is God really going to make that happen? And it's like, doesn't matter. The person, though the psychosomatic symptoms of guilt welling up within them, it's like, oh, if there's any fear that, this, that I'm going to be found out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove that myself. I'll find myself out. I'll out myself. And a similar thing is happening here with these elders of the city. I'm performing a ritual murder in some ways. And I'm going to wash my hands of this and say, I had nothing to do with it. And I don't know anything about it. And I do. It's out in the valley. It's in the full sight of God. Are you really going to say that? Now that you have, or do you have blood on your hands? Are you clean or are you unclean, guilty or innocent? This reminds me, obviously, also of Pontius Pilate washing his hands. As Elder Maxwell said, never were they dirtier than after he did that. In this case, it's a matter of we really are clean from the blood that's been shed. We had nothing to do with it. And there's no way that we can make it right. Or we would. Pilate could have made it right, but he didn't. They then pray in verse 8, Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. That's how you do it. That's, there's no way that we can find out who did it, and justice will not be served in this life. So please, God, be merciful to those of us who cannot administer justice through no fault of our own. We'll leave that in your hands and pray that our hands are clean through the process. He then adds a few other things here in chapter 21 that are interesting. He says that in war, if you take captive a woman that you desire to marry, and again, I apologize for the, the misogyny of the ancient world, okay? But God is trying to work within their culture and then lift them up above their culture. And it's a line upon line, gradual approach, little by little, as we saw before. Jesus will have some stronger things and better things to say than what is being said here. But we're going from Egypt to, to Israel, from outer darkness to telestial, or from telestial to terrestrial. Jesus will take us the rest of the way. But in these cases, if you take captive a woman and desire to marry her, you can. But according to this chapter, she first has to shave her head and be given an entire month to mourn her family. Now that seems odd, but what does it do? It recognizes her as a real individual who has lost everything. That this is a moment of mourning and a new birth, a new beginning with a new household. Treat her like you would a new baby joining your family. That's what shaving hair typically symbolizes with the leper cleansing ritual and so on. The other thing that it does is it absolutely forbids any kind of rape because sadly, unfortunately, tragically in wartime, that's often what ends up happening. The, 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 
victorious soldiers go in and, th and think that they have right to all the so-called spoils of war, including women that are innocent and must be kept innocent. Here, if you want to marry them, it's a marriage and a month will pass. This cannot be motivated by a moment of lust. This has to be something that they can prepare for and that you can prepare and purify yourself for as well. And again, this sounds harsh, but we are rising above rape, which is a telestial sin. In a few verses later, in those kinds of cases, after marriage, divorce is allowed, but you cannot sell your ex-wife. Which again, sounds like, well, duh. But well, if this was a, a captive, from a, a, a land that we conquered and I've married her and for whatever reason, I don't want to remain with her. You don't sell her, okay? So in some ways, what's happening here? You are rising above, picturing a woman as mere property. You, you have to be better than that. Rise above rape, rise above that objectification or commodification of woman. Later, it explains plural marriage and says if one wife is loved and another is unloved, we can think Rachel and Leah here, if the firstborn son comes from the unloved wife, then deal with it, dad. This is still the order of the family and you must honor that son as the firstborn. That's what Joseph, excuse me, Jacob would have done with Reuben, had done with Reuben until Reuben disqualified himself. Even though Reuben was Leah's son, he's the birthright boy, until he disqualifies himself. And what's that doing? So far, we've seen examples of rising above some telestial level. And here, it's rising above a level of nepotism or family favoritism that's, that's not justifiable. In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus teaches this, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus there is taking a terrestrial law and lifting it up to a celestial level. Moses, yes, allowed for divorce, and it seems that it's no-fault divorce that's being allowed for. Oh, that no-fault divorce has wreaked havoc in families ever since that was allowed a few, gener a few decades ago. But to see it allowed there in Moses' time, Jesus is not confirming that, yep, that's the way it always is supposed to be. And so read Deuteronomy 21 and some of these other chapters with a grain of salt, that that's better than what they were living prior. A step up for them, but it would be a step down for us. So let's be better than that. Let's be more celestial. Uh, another detail in chapter 21 that I hope we live beyond and above is if you have a stubborn or rebellious child, then they should be publicly executed. Yikes. I hope that that's not just motivation for the child to be a better child, but for the parent to be a better parent. The last thing I would ever want to do is actually execute that penalty. And so I'm going to be a very intentional parent and hope that I raise good children. Near the end of this chapter then, verse 22, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, so this is going to be a public hanging, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. 
that the land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now we can think public hangings there, but also public crucifixions, because the cross is a tree of sorts. And as they are left hanging upon that tree, oh, anyone so hanging is accursed of God. But even they, convicted criminals, deserve to be laid to rest. Bury them, and bury them that day. Don't leave them up there. Now, if we're thinking crucifixion of Christ, as we should, in John 19, it describes the, the Jewish leaders sending a message to the soldiers, make sure you break their legs because tomorrow's the Sabbath. And crucifixion can be such a long and torturous ordeal that they might be hanging up there for quite some time. And if they die on a day where we can't do the work of taking them down to give them a proper burial, then they'll be hanging up there for too long. So let's speed up the process so we can give them their burial today instead of tomorrow. Well, we know that Jesus had already given up the ghost. And so no need to break a bone in that Passover lamb. But this, that's, this is the, the verse from their law that they're trying in this twisted way to live. In fact, Paul, who knows his Old Testament inside and out, will point to that in his letter to the Galatians where he says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. He's invoking Deuteronomy 21 to point out that Jesus became our curse so that we could become his blessing. A willingness to take our place on the cross. We Barabbases one and all. And to lower himself to that level so we could lift, he could lift us up to his. Now, Deuteronomy 22, we've gone through a lot of criminal law and family law. Here are a bunch of more miscellaneous laws. And scattered throughout these chapters, he's reminding them, we've got to obey. We need that paradigm shift. 22 verse 1, Thou shalt not see thy brother's ox or his sheep go astray. And then the next few verses expands that to include just about anything else your brother might have lost. Don't Hide yourself from them. Thou shalt in any case bring them again unto thy brother. And if thy brother be not nigh unto thee, or if thou know him not, then thou shalt bring it unto thine own house, and it shall be with thee until thy brother seek after it, and thou shalt restore it to him again. Man, that seems like a lot of work. It's so much easier just to pretend you didn't see it. And there's a, a wallet on the street. I, I, I'm not going to be so dishonest as to steal it, but do I have to be so honest as to pick it up and figure out who it belongs to and return it to them? That's so inconvenient. Well, ask the Good Samaritan about the willingness to become inconvenienced to help a stranger. And you get a hint here of why that Good Samaritan was so good. In fact, he wasn't in, yes, he went above and beyond, but in some ways, that's the very least of what is expected of us. And can we do that? Uh, even to the point of holding on to it? And that's one thing if it's a wallet. It's another thing if it's an ox or a sheep. Wait a minute, then I have to care for it and I have to feed it and I stand to lose here. Well, yeah, you're right. But you're losing less than what the person is losing if they lost it all. And if it were you in their shoes... Wouldn't you want someone else to do this? 
Oh, even Old Testament inching them towards the golden rule. In verse 5, this is an interesting one in our day particularly. And the only place in Scripture I really see this taught. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now, much of the rest of this chapter, he's going to lay down some laws against combining dissimilar things. He'll say things like, don't mix seeds in the same planting. He'll say things like, don't plow with an ox and an ass together. That's, that would, that's an example of being unequally yoked. Okay, and one's going to be stronger than the other, and it's just going to be a nightmare for both parties. He even says, don't sew together two different kinds of fabric into the same article of clothing. Hmm. Now, what's all that about? That seems overly strict. And I'll admit, those ones are. But what is happening here is God is trying to help them develop a sense of natural boundaries and trying to help them develop the ability to discern or distinguish between things that are unlike and must be kept unlike. Uh, remember in the, in the creation story, we're going to separate light from darkness. You've got to be able to tell the difference. We're going to separate water above from water below. Can you tell the difference there too? We're going to separate sea from land, gospel ground versus cultural current, the fixed from the flexible. Here, can you tell the different types of seed? They kind of look alike. Can you tell the different types of fabric? Then keep them distinguished in your mind. Different types of animals, that makes it a little bit more obvious. We're getting closer and closer. Well, how about different genders? And I know this is a very sensitive subject. And I want to be as sensitive here as I can be. When I list LGBTQIA+, I have names and faces in mind for every single letter of family members or friends or students that I love, that I've taught in each of those categories, including the T of transgender. Here in verse 5, in the midst of this discussion of differences, he is saying a woman shouldn't dress like a man or a man like a woman and like I said, that's the only place I can see a scripture aimed so directly at that particular topic. Now, we talked about the L and the G in Genesis 19 when we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. And I was trying to flex every muscle I could to balance love and law, truth and tolerance, the law of chastity for one group, that might find that law challenging, but also the law of charity, which sometimes, sadly, all too often, in fact, that particular group finds it hard to live, that particular law. And so here I want to do my best as I simply point out that verse, recognizing the difficulty. In fact, I have talked with members, uh, gay members of the church uh, gay men, lesbian sisters who are living the gospel and living the law of chastity and even trying to help the church itself institutionally navigate how do we reach out to our members. 
and others of other faiths or no faith at all that are in the LGBTQ community. And even among those for whom homosexuality is their mortal condition, they, in need of our compassion and our understanding, realize that there may even be a greater need for compassion and understanding for those in the transgender community. Uh, even among gays and lesbians, uh, some have said, being transgender is even harder. And how do we help there? Uh, what can we do? Again, it goes back to balancing love and law and truth and tolerance and chastity and charity. It comes with being understanding and compassionate and kind. And not shying away from either chastity or charity. But embracing them both. I will simply add this by way of food for thought. In those instances where the mind and the body seem to be in disagreement. Again, throughout this whole passage in Deuteronomy 22, we are trying to navigate difference. And we've been wrong so many times throughout our past. We have been so hardcore on certain differences that we should have been softer on. Racial ones is a huge one. Uh, the race difference. The ancient Israelites didn't deal with it the way we have in modern times. It was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. Moses marries an Ethiopian and Miriam freaks out about it, but Moses is fine and so is God. And it's like those lines, oh, come on. Some of the national lines, we don't have to be so st stuck in, in stone. Be okay with Edomites and Moabites and, and Ammonites. The difference that he's making in the Old Testament, first and foremost, is the religious ones. We can't intermarry out of covenant because then we'll fall to their level. But rising them up to ours, that's beautiful. That's Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees with the souls that he had won. There's missionary work going on. There's strangers coming into the family of faith, converts to the house of Israel. It's amazing what's happening there throughout Old Testament times. So those lines erased them. But if we've done damage throughout history of holding fixed to lines that shouldn't, that we should erase, then unfortunately, like history so often does, we've overcorrected. And now we are erasing lines that need to hold. And as sensitively as I can, can I make sure that I bring up that gender is part of our eternal identity and purpose? as prophets, seers, and revelators have testified of in our day. As we see male and female divided in creation and then renewed, restored to each other in marriage, to see heavenly parents. It's the irony that there are those in the church that are so desperate to know more about heavenly mother. And yet often in the same breath. They deny all gender differences among mortality and want to erase that line and say gender is a, a, a fiction of the mind and yet hold to gender differences among deity so that they can hold to a view of mother in heaven. Those are logically incompatible.
And so I would simply say here, when the mind and the body are in disagreement and our hope is to reconcile the two, be very careful at, about which one you choose to change. The mind, as we all know, is such a moving target and it changes and develops over time. Neuroplasticity is a reality that even scientists will help us understand that we can change our minds with time. The irony to me is that the body, which is so much more fixed and stable, is being connected to the mind, which is so often more variable and changing. And in our day, we have decided to change bodies to follow the mind instead of changing the mind to be grounded in the body. I pray I'm not being insensitive here, but that is the choice that we are making. And my prayer is that we can reconcile the two somehow. My prayer is that we can help people navigate a very difficult circumstance and to be sensitive enough to be patient and understanding and pray that our friends within the transgender community can be patient and with us because we need it and i'm sorry for that we have tried your patience so long i just do want want us to consider this is back to creation with the sea and the land and we choose to live on the land, even though we have mastered navigating the sea. Because the ground is constant and the sea is not. And please just prayerfully ponder that when it comes to mind and body differences. A few last things in Deuteronomy 22. He reiterates laws against fornication of falsely accusing one's wife of former fornication, which means a virtuous woman has a right to her reputation for virtue. There are some uh, verses in chapter 22 about shotgun weddings. If you have taken someone's virtue, not that you can take it, it if it was you and not them, they still are chaste, even if you are not, then marry them and live up to that responsibility. There are laws against adultery in verse 23 and 24. This one's interesting. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto an husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. So both are guilty here, and both will be condemned. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. Now in that verse, think about Joseph and Mary in the New Testament. The defining attribute of Joseph, according to Matthew chapter 1, was his justice. He was just Joseph. Strictly obedient to the law. Who better to raise the lawgiver than he? And so when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, when she is betrothed to him, how could this happen? and he is minded to put her away privily, that's a huge oh, act of mercy on his part because he's defined by his justice. And oh, 
to have to squeeze in mercy somehow without robbing justice. How do I do this? Well, he's trying to work his way through Deuteronomy 22 with that. There's something else here in verse 25 and 26. If a man find a betrothed damsel in the field. The previous verse, it talked about her being in the city. Well, what if she's in the field? And the man force her and lie with her. Then the man only that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. Now the difference here, like I said, is where did it take place? Either way, uh, there was immorality committed. The question is, was it consensual or not? And to help them understand it, it what, what was the location? In the city, if it happened in the city, then obviously she would have cried out. That's the concern that they had in terms of, should she be punished right alongside the guilty male? Well, the assumption is, who on earth would allow for this? Of course, it would have to be non-consensual. And as a result, she would cry out. And there's another assumption there too. If she cries out, then someone would have come to her rescue to help her, to, to save her from what is happening to her. Israel is being expected to be chased and virtuous and to preserve their own virtue, but help others preserve theirs too, especially in the face of those that are trying to rob them of it. But even that, are they robbing them of it? Is this damaged goods that can never come clean? No. In the assumption of, of, of being consensual, then yes, they're both equally guilty. But in instances when it is non-consensual and the woman had no one to cry out to but God, the woman had no one to come to her rescue, then she has committed no sin worthy of death. I was once asked by a woman to give her a priesthood blessing and I asked what she was going through that required one. And she said she had been the victim of rape once earlier and it was just kind of coming back to haunt her. I just needed some peace to be able to navigate that trauma. And I just remember as I laid my hands on her head feeling such a worthiness in her and such a righteousness and, and wanting to just free her from any sense of, of shared guilt because it wasn't on her, it was on him. And I remember the phrase that came out of my mouth that Christ is the God of the innocent victim because no one has ever been more innocent or more victimized than he. He understands it. He gets it. He was never guilty of any sin worthy of death, and yet he died for us all. And so the language there in Deuteronomy 22, for any of you who have suffered at the hands of someone else, you are an innocent victim and are loved by the God of innocent victims himself. There is no sin worthy of death in you. Please pray that the Spirit will help you keep that in mind so that you are not further victimized by the person that victimized you to begin with. In Deuteronomy 23, there is 
some more additional laws here, some additional boundary maintenance like we talked about earlier. He describes laws concerning those who are allowed and who are not allowed to enter into the congregation of the Lord. Now that doesn't stop people from joining the Israelites in worshiping the God of Israel. It simply are those who, can they be deemed Israelites or not? Can they function in leadership positions over Israelites? And the ones that are disallowed are eunuchs, illegitimate children, and the Ammonites and Moabites. Now that's interesting. With eunuchs, hold on to that until you get to Isaiah 56, which is to me the very best verse in all of Scripture to people who don't fit the mold as far as family circumstances or, or you know, sexual identities and so forth. I'm going to hold on for that one. Okay, so eunuchs, there's hope for you. Illegitimate children... Well, think about those born outside the covenant. There's even going to be hope for them when we get to the book of Judges in a moment. So it's interesting, even God making exceptions to his rules. But I guess the rule giver is the one that can give the exception. And then finally, Ammonites and Moabites. Oh, is it because they have such a, uh, an awkward past back in Genesis 19 and Lot and his daughters and now his sons slash grandsons simultaneously. Uh, what do I do with that? No, this is the Lord's explanation. Why can't Ammonites and Moabites rise in Israelite leadership? Verse four and five, because they met you not with bread and with water in the way. When ye came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Baor of Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Now in that second one, he adds a cool little uh, explanation here. Nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. That's great. It's like, Balaam was trying, but God just wouldn't let him. No, you're going to bless my people, because I've blessed them. And I've blessed them because I love them. I know they don't deserve it, but they certainly don't deserve your cursing, so I'm not going to let, even let you say it, okay? But that other part, they were passing through your land. They wanted to. They asked to. You wouldn't let them. In fact, why, why didn't you just, you shouldn't even have to have been asked. You should have come forth. This is the law of hospitality. This is Abraham with those three holy messengers. That's even Lot, surrounded by the sins of Sodom which was holding back their bread, even though they were filled with it. But Lot didn't succumb to that. How could his posterity sin against their forefathers' approach? You have to be better than that. And to me, that's a fascinating thing to realize what disqualified them was not a, an awkward origin story, which was not of their choosing. It was how they chose to treat other people. And we've seen it repeatedly through the Old Testament. How do Israelites treat the widow, the fatherless, the stranger, the poor? We have to be better at that. Both hand and heart, wide open. There's even a law in Deuteronomy 23, as we're dealing with more miscellaneous ones, about public sanitation of all things. Yes, God does think of everything. Uh, to the point that if one relieves themselves out in a field somewhere, make sure you cover it. When you're in the camp of Israel, dig a hole for crying out loud. 
Okay, I know this is kind of disgusting, but it's part of human nature. But don't succumb to the natural man and just leave someone else to clean up your mess. That might be the more overarching principle God is getting at. Make sure that you take responsibility for the messes you've made and clean them up as best you can. Don't just assume someone else is going to do it for you. And so please cover. And then he adds this, interesting, verse 14. For the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp. Therefore shall thy camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in thee and turn away from thee. We're not just trying to clean up after ourselves for the sake of others. We're trying to do it for the sake of God. For him to dwell among us, we need to be as holy as he is. So keep things clean for him. It's that great primary song. If the Savior stood beside me, would I do the things I do? Would I just make messes and then leave them unattended to? Or would I do my very best to make the camp as holy, as holiness personified? Another thing to add here, verse 15. Thou shalt not deliver unto his master the servant which is escaped from his master unto thee. He shall dwell with thee, even among you, in that place which he shall choose in one of thy gates, where it liketh him best. Thou shalt not oppress him. Now this is a fascinating verse. This is an escaped servant or an escaped slave. If they come to you, not only you're not supposed to send them back to their master, but you're supposed to let them dwell with you. And not just, oh, hide them somewhere, let them choose where they want to live, wherever it liketh him best. Not like, well, this is the most convenient place for me. It's like, no, what do you prefer? I see you on the absolute equal level with me. You're not my servant. I'm not going to treat you like one. There is an equality. There is a humanity here. There's an openness and recognizing not only their, their freedom, but their preferences. That's beautiful. I'll say this. During the years leading up to the Civil War in the United States, where northern ministers and southern ministers were fighting over the Bible with one another. This is Lincoln's second inaugural address. We read the same Bible and pray to the same God. But boy, do we come to different conclusions on what the Bible says. In the South, you see, back in 1850, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act. And it was a, a way to try to appease the South some of these painful compromises with culture. And they were saying to the South, fine, there will, we'll pass a law that if a slave escapes you, they're supposed to go back. And people in the North are supposed to honor this law and return the fugitive slaves. Now, it was actually one of the best things that ever happened to the Northerners because all of a sudden they started feeling complicit in slavery. It used to be a matter of, well, it's not us. We're washing our hands of it. It's just those horrible Southerners. But you can sit back in your neutrality, in your nice, convenient neutrality, and wash your hands and not feel guilty at all when you're not doing anything to help. Well, now they started feeling guilty because they were required by law to return escaped slaves to the South. And now we're kind of participating in a horrible way. And the, Northern, uh, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 really got the Northerners more up in arms than anything had before. But what was interesting, religiously, what were Southern preachers preaching? 
they were preaching the book of Philemon in the New Testament. When Onesimus leaves the employ, well, the servitude in his, with, for his master Philemon, and Paul asks him to return and asks Philemon to forgive him. And so the South looked at that and said, See, that's the biblical equivalent of the Fugitive Slave Act. And you Northerners should be as good as Paul. And you slaves should be as good as Onesimus, and you should come back. Of course, they never added, and I should be as kind as Philemon and forgive people. No, they didn't want to get into that detail. Nor did they want to get into Deuteronomy chapter 23. But that's what the northern ministers quoted. It's so interesting to see a war of words and a tumult of opinions over a biblical battlefield with the south saying, oh, Philemon, and the north saying, ah, Deuteronomy 23. And that's the verse that they would quote. No, we are not going to deliver those servants back to you. We want to, we will not oppress them. In fact, let them dwell with us wherever they like best. Now, some northerners didn't quite do as good a job on that detail as they should have. Sadly, we too often pick pieces of what laws to keep and what not to. We got to get better than that. Now, Deuteronomy 24, more miscellaneous laws. I told you, second law, we got lots of them. Divorce is mentioned here. It's allowed. So is remarriage. Jesus, like I said before, will raise the bar far beyond the no-fault divorce that we think is fine. You better have a good reason. Uh, he goes on, there's no kidnapping. He says to obey the laws concerning leprosy that we saw back in, in Leviticus. He talks about laws about lending and borrowing, laws to protect and provide for the poor and the needy. There's lots of them. Along those lines, look at verse 14. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren, an Israelite, or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. That's so important especially in our day of multinational corporations, our day of immigration, both legal and illegal, to realize that we must not oppress the poor and the needy, whether they are native-born or foreign-born. Oh, business owners, be careful about exploiting foreign labor. Beware of diminishing the humanity of people that might speak with a different accent than yours. We need to treat them kindly and, and do it empathetically and compassionately since if there were ever a people that knew what it was like to be on the other side of things, it was the Israelites. In fact, God reminds them of that frequently. He says in verse 15, as his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor, and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. What he's saying there is, if they're so poor that they came out to work today so they can eat today, then don't wait for two weeks to give them their paycheck. Give them their money right now, because they are hand-to-mouth existence. I love the humanity we see here, the compassion, the mercy. And again, it's all rooted in personal experience. Verse 22, thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing, to care for 
escaped servants, to be kind to the poor and the needy, to let them glean in your fields, to pay them the day they work so that they don't spend a night hungry, to lift and to bless the widow and the orphan, the stranger in the land. We have to be better at that ourselves. It was beautiful when there was an earlier refugee crisis, and we're in the midst of another one right now, that the entire Relief Society of the Church began a, an initiative called I Was a Stranger. And to be reminded of our own experiences as refugees from Missouri and the kind people of Illinois allowed us to come in and provided for our needs, how can we not do likewise? It's the least that compassion requires. It's the absolute minimum of what empathy would entail for us. We next see justice and judgment in Deuteronomy 25. They are both required, including punishment for all crimes that entail it. In verse 3, here's the maximum, though, for anything shy of capital punishment. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. Paul in the New Testament talks about several occasions where he was beaten with stripes, 40 minus 1. Oh, we're going to be so merciful. We're even going to stop one short of the absolute maximum. What's interesting here is, again, if we're recognizing the reality and humanity of our fellow beings, even condemned criminals who are killed don't leave them hanging on the tree. In this case, if it's punishment shy of the death penalty, anything, I mean, 40 still sounds brutal to us. But here what he's saying is there has to be a limit. Do not go beyond it. And why? I don't want your brother to seem vile unto thee. Wait a minute. They were criminals. Isn't that vile? No. That's someone who's made a mistake. I loved my experience in Tennessee when they Every semester, they would combine a class of divinity school students with a class of inmates at the maximum security prison in Nashville. And I signed up for one of those classes because I wanted the experience. Some sign up for it because they want to go into prison ministry. And I actually have colleagues that have taught institute in prisons and say it's one of the most profound, life-changing experiences they've ever had. And that was my experience just studying there in the prison with friends, because so they became to me, friends who had made major mistakes and were paying for it, but they never felt or seemed vile to me, because but by the grace of God go I. And to see this so much throughout the Old Testament, to recognize humanity of fellow humans, and even among those that must be punished, corporal punishment shy of capital punishment, never allow inmates, prisoners, convicts, ex-convicts to become vile in your eyes. Blessed are those who have, were in prison and visited me, Jesus said. And inasmuch as you have done them unto the least of these, my brethren. You have done it unto me. It hit me recently that the easiest way to want to care for the least of these is to realize that you're one of them. 
and I'm no better than they are, and they're no worse than me, and I want to, to treat them accordingly. Also in chapter 25, he talks about the law of leveret marriage. There's Judah and Tamar. But then this interesting ritual, if the brother just refuses. So this would have been what should have happened if Tamar hadn't taken things into her own hands and, and worked through the law of leveret marriage and gone in unto her father-in-law. But this is in Deuteronomy 25, verse 9. If the brother just absolutely refuses to perform his duty, and this is what the wife does. This is classic. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders. So this is going to be a visible kind of public shaming again. And loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. Now, that seems so odd. On the one hand, you get the spitting in the face. Okay, that seems a little more obvious. When, when uh, Miriam had chided against Moses and is struck with leprosy, and Moses pleads for her, remember what God says? Oh, if somebody had spit in their father's face, there's some, at least some shame there that needs to be dealt with. So she's going to have leprosy for a week. Is that a good combination of justice and mercy? Well, here, the, the woman that is not being cared for, provided for by this brother-in-law, she gets to spit in his face. How's that? Okay. There's shame. I can't believe you would be so callous against your own brother to, as to be unwilling to raise up seed unto him. Now, what's with the shoe? That one's a little more odd. I get to take your shoe off. Hmm. And from here on out, that's going to be your nickname among Israel. Oh, that's the guy who had his shoe loosed. Mm. Well, what's that all about? In our day, we sometimes talk about having the shoe on the other foot, which is this sense of, do you know what it feels like? Do you, first of all, do you know what it's like to run roughshod over the commandments of God? But also, do you know what it feels like to be unprovided for? Because that's what you're forcing me into. I will be a widow that is not cared for. I pray someone else will, will care for me. We'll see that with Ruth and Boaz in a few weeks. But to see the shoe on the other foot and the day will come where you know what it feels like. To be left on your own. To be barefoot in a world where it's a painful path that you're asking me to walk. Can you not do this for me? Can you not do this for your brother? Can you not do this for your family? If not, then the world will, that will be your reputation moving forward. And you'll probably get what's coming to you. You'll end up tripping up over your shoelaces since they're untied. A few other things. Fair economic practices are described in verse 15. Thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shalt thou have. Are our business dealings, our financial transactions, perfect and just? They should. Verse 17 and 18, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way, when you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. As a result of that, they were commanded to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. 
Thou shalt not forget it, he says in verse 19. You see, in some ways, this was worse. See, the Amalekites are going to be treated worse than the Ammonites and the Moabites. The problem with the Ammonites and the Moabites is they wouldn't bring food for you. They weren't hospitable. Amalekites were even worse. They attacked the weak and the wounded at the edge of the herd like predators normally do. You remember the story of Moses on the mountaintop in Exodus 17 with the, the rod in his hands and Aaron and Hur lifting them up. Uh, Joshua down in the valley with the armies of Israel to fight whom? To fight the Amalekites. But what were the Amalekites doing? This is the first place we see what, what instigated this. They were coming after the hindmost. They were seeking to prey upon the faint and the weary. I wonder if that was why Moses had to keep his hands up the whole time. I need you to know how easy it is to become weak and weary yourself. I need you to know what it feels like to be the hindmost and need help on both sides just to keep you going. You must not oppress the poor. We must not pick off the weak and wounded, we need to care for them and care out of compassion and out of personal empathy born of personal experience. It's the least we could do. As the book of Deuteronomy nears its end, there's a few other reminders of sacrificial ritual that needs to take place. A little hint of Leviticus here in Deuteronomy. In verse 1 of Deuteronomy 26, it shall be when thou art come in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possessest it, and dwellest therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth which thou shalt bring of thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. And thou shalt put it in a basket, and shall go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. By now we should know that as the long way of saying the tabernacle, the temple, the house of God, the place of his name. Now, what he's describing here, there's a whole feast of first fruits that happens every year, right? It's one of those three uh, pilgrimage harvests or, or festivals. Bring the harvest in. God has allowed us to eat yet again. But here, this is the first of the first fruits. When you cross the Jordan and enter that land flowing with milk and honey, when you gather your first harvest, make sure you give some to God. Realize that you know, remember him in the things that he's given you. Bring a basket full. I've sometimes heard of business owners framing the first dollar of pure profit and keeping it on the wall as a reminder. That's when we went beyond breaking even. We dug ourselves out of the hole and started moving forward. And just a reminder of that. That's what's happening here. Do we have and do we keep a basket full of evidence of God's generosity and kindness in our life. You remember they kept a pot of manna in the Ark of the Covenant as a token of God's blessings? Well, here they're supposed to do it too. Bring a basket, and I hope we have a basket full of reminders. In verse 3, Thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days, and say unto him, I profess this day unto the Lord thy God. So I'm bearing public testimony here as I drop off my goodie bag, my basket here that I am come into the country which the Lord swear unto our fathers to give it. I am here to bear testimony of the 
promised blessings of God, that they have come according to his promises. I want the world to know that. God keeps his word. Can we keep our word to him? In verse 4, The priest shall take the basket out of thine hand, set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. Beautiful. Side by side, evidence of what God has given you, there's the basket, and evidence of what we are to give God. There's the altar. Maybe those are things we need to keep on shelf number one, right? A miniature basket and a miniature altar. God giving, me giving. This is a reciprocal relationship, a covenant connection. In verse 5, thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. That could describe Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, all three. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation, great, mighty, populous. Verse 6, the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice, looked on our affliction, our labor, our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. Verse 9, he hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land, which thou, O Lord, hast given me. You see, that first testimony was about where we are. That second testimony is about where we've been, where we came from. We had nothing, and now thou hast given us everything. And I never want to forget that. I want to hold this basket next to this altar so I will be motivated to give to God all he asks of me since he has given to me all that I've ever needed. In verse 16, This day the Lord thy God hath commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments. Thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thine heart, with all thy soul. And how could we not, based on all that he's given us? I've heard it said that there are only three kinds of prayers in the world. One is help. One is thanks. And the other is wow. This chapter seems to combine the prayers of thanks and wow, and they grow out of the prayers of help that have been answered all along the way. And if I can keep my basket handy, then I will always be motivated to offer on this sacrifice. A broken heart and a contrite spirit, a will to live the commandments of God. I, it's the least I can do for him after all that he has done and does for me. That's what I'm saying here. It's what I'm acting out with this ritual, this basket, these offerings. It's what I'm saying in these testimonies. The chapter ends, 17, thou hast avouched. That means testified. You've testified that the Lord this day is thy God. And the Lord hath avouched, so he's bearing his testimony too. He's avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people and holy people unto the Lord thy God as he hath spoken. Oh, this is call and response. This is me testifying and him testifying. This is me saying, I will have thee as my God and him responding. And I have always wanted to have thee as my people. 
Now let's make a memorial of that, shall we? We've started, we brought our basket of first fruits. Let's set this in stone. And so that's what 27 asks of us. Verse one, Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep all the commandments which I command thee this day. It shall be on the day when you shall pass over Jordan unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set thee up great stones, plaster them with plaster, and thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law. This is going to be a marker, a memorial to the law. Remember when this started, the first law was Exodus, and they got it carved in stone by the finger of God. This is the second law, Deuteronomy. And once again, we are going to carve it in stone. Stones and gathered and plastered ourselves this time. God made the first, we'll make the second. And between those two bookends, I hope we've learned a thing or two. This is my attempt to etch it in stone, to engrave it upon the fleshy tables. I hope my heart is soft, circumcised, open to the finger of God. They're told to set up that marker at Ebal and to build an altar there made of whole stones. They're even told, make sure it's not touched by any iron tools. This is another, just like the altar in earlier Old Testament, it's described that way. Not hewn stones, just rough ones. Here, no iron tools. Why? Because a stone is meant to be cut out of the mountains without hands. That's what's going to roll forth to fill the earth. And so put up these stones, which you've made, set up an altar of stones I've made. Or maybe we're again, we're tying these two stone tablets together and put it there at Mount Ebal. Now we saw that word, that name before, and oh yeah, that's the pep rally thing, right? And he gets more clear here in verse 12. These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when ye are come over Jordan. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, Benjamin. Meanwhile, these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So the, these are the opposing student sections at the basketball game. This is home and away fans at the football match. This is the pep rally with, with people on either side of the issue oh, hoping for one outcome or the other. And that's exactly what they're going to play out in this valley of decision between Ebal and Gerizim. Right at its base will be this stone etched into it the law of God. That's really what we're deciding to obey or disobey. And we will have from Mount Ebal curses being yelled and from Mount Gerizim blessings being offered. You want to make this crystal clear? The choice is mine to make. So verse 14, the Levites shall speak and say unto all the people of Israel with a loud voice, cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. And through the rest of this chapter, there are more, Cursed be he that, fill in the blank, and Amen from all the people. So we're really trying to get buy-in from the house of Israel. We're trying to persuade them to actually keep these laws. And so let's act it out. We'll make it visual. We'll, we'll make it audible. We'll, we're going to reenact this there at this valley of decision. And throughout chapter 27, it's a fascinating one to read. Cursed, amen, and cursed, amen. It's like, do you agree with this? 
And all of these amens, okay, I'm signing on the line. I agree. We'll see more of that in chapter 28. And we're really seeing curses and blessings side by side here. In verse 1, it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee, and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Great verbs. Not only will they come, they'll overtake you. I mean, you can't even run fast enough to run away from the blessings of God. The windows of heaven are going to open up and pour out a blessing so great, you can't even receive it. They will overtake you. And how's this by way of example? Verse 3, Blessed shalt thou be in the city, blessed shalt thou be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Oh, I almost this crescendo of blessings. And you can just picture the people shouting and the Levites are saying this. And everyone kind of knows in unison, this would be such a fun one to, to act out at some point. And to just, blessed is this, and blessed is that, and blessed is this. And it's just echoing off the everlasting hills. Meanwhile, what about the other side? I mean, the blessing side goes on for verse after verse after verse after verse. And then 15, but it shall come to pass. If thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Picture the Levites shifting their view now to Mount Ebal and its curses. That all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Same language. You can't run from blessings if you are worthy. You can't run from curses if you're not. He then goes on in almost identical language from what he said about the blessings. I'm trying to make this crystal clear, okay? And here's curse after this, and curse about this, and curse and curse and curse. He lists all of the opposites of the blessings he'd mentioned before. From verse 16 all the way to verse 68. This is a long one, okay? If it's, uh, if it's there to scare us into obedience, this might actually work. It's actually really funny. I was preparing this lesson all week, and part of it, I was sitting at a train station during my commute up to the Institute. And I was waiting for a train to come, and I was on my laptop with Deuteronomy open and some notes pages and things like this. And somebody walked by at this train station that evidently was, let's just say he probably wasn't keeping the word of wisdom. Okay? I'll leave it at that. Uh, and I'd never seen him before, just some stranger, but he comes kind of staggering by and he looks at me on my laptop and he just mutters under his breath, I hope your laptop gets a, a virus and breaks down. And I, was, I, I didn't raise my eyes, just like, huh, wow. Uh, I, evidently, I wasn't the only one worthy of his curses because another train wa uh, passed by, stopped to pick up some new passengers. This wasn't the one I was taking, but he saw this train come by and stop. And he offers a malediction, a curse in that direction too. He just shouts at whoever's on the train, I hope that your train breaks down and you don't ever get to where you're going. And I, I honestly had to keep myself from laughing because here I was studying Deuteronomy 28 at that exact moment about curses being shouted in the air of anyone that was unworthy of the blessings of God. And there was my, there was my Levite that walked by. Uh, shouting curses at me and curses at the, the, the train passengers. And I just thought, wow, 
Thank you for the visual, God. That was well-timed. So interesting. But then verse 47. All these curses come. Why? Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. We saw that back with the care for the poor. It's not just actions I'm after. It's attitudes too. And so if you're obeying, be happy about it. It's, this is the source of joy and, and happiness. When Abraham wanted greater happiness and peace and rest, what did he want? Yes, the blessings of the fathers, but blessings always come from obedience to law. And so he wanted to live those things too. So can we be joyful? Can we be glad? This is not about restriction. This is about relationship. It's not about being confined or even commanded. It's about being in covenant. And what's not to rejoice over when you're one with God? In verse 58, all these curses will come if thou wilt not observe to do all the words of thy law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. Do we have any idea who we're dealing with? Who has given us these words? They are glorious. They are fearful in an awe-inspiring kind of way. They come from the Lord, our God. And if he's our God, may we act like it. He says in verse 64, The Lord shall scatter thee among all people. How's that for curses? From the one end of the earth, even unto the other. Scattering of Israel, as prophesied at the beginning of this book. Then, verse 65 and 6, Among these nations the places you've been scattered, led by the Lord, as we saw earlier. Thou shalt find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. How's that for barefoot? But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sorrow of mind. Thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night and shall have none assurance of thy life. Talk about a complete loss of faith of calm, of rest and reassurance. One of the signs of the times in the last days would be that men's hearts shall fail them. And that's being described here. They have no vision of a better future. Their eyes have failed. They have no peace of mind. To understand, I worry about the massive increase, it seems, of anxiety and depression in the world. And I read that in verse 65 and 66. In fact, it's so intense among the wicked that it's even affecting the righteous. And people through no fault of their own who do not deserve the curses of the world are being cursed by the world as their anxieties their depression spreads. I'm not talking some contagious mental illness here. I'm simply talking about the difficulty of living in a world that has lost its hope. And does that affect us too? This is, this is intensity, and we're dealing with it. Now, by now we are almost done with the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is, is wrapping up this last lecture. But this is a, co a covenant of such consequence, he wants to make sure that we all understand it. So in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 29, 
These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb, back in Sinai. So there was a covenant at the beginning of their journey, Mount Sinai, and a covenant at the end of their journey, Mount Nebo. In some ways, these two mountains are the bookends of their wilderness wanderings. And what have we learned along the way? There were stone tablets then, and there are new stone tablets now. There was a house of God that we built along the way, and are we living up to it? Will we do what we came to accomplish? You remember Abraham chapter 3? There's space there. We'll make an earth whereupon these may dwell. That's the premortal plan, but how's this? We'll see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. Hopefully that's what we're proving in our life between the mountaintops. Moses then reminds them of all that they've seen throughout their last 40 years and admits in verse 4, Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. Maybe it's not entirely your fault. Maybe you struggled. Egypt is still too much with us. You were raised by parents that weren't quite ready to embrace the promises. But are your eyes open now? Are your ears ready to hear? Is your heart ready to perceive? Can we do this? I'm so ready. I pray you are too. In verse 10 then, ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water. All rise, he's basically saying. Every one of you, from top to bottom, everything in between, are you ready to make this collective covenant? If we're ever going to be Zion, we have to be one heart and one mind. We're in this thing together. So all of us, Will we rise to the level of what God is asking of us? In verse 14, Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and then brace yourself for this, and also with him that is not here with us this day. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we refer to it as the new and everlasting covenant. It's new for each generation upon whom God reconfirms it. It was new to them. It was new to their fathers. It was new to Joseph and Brigham and Hiram and Emma. It's new to us when we take upon ourselves the name of Christ and when we all relive the book of Deuteronomy every Sunday in partaking of the sacrament. But it's everlasting. It's always been there, always will be. It's the covenant God made with us through Christ in pre-mortality. I will send you a savior to bring you home. There will be a, a prophet like unto this Messiah. He will be Moses. He'll act the whole thing out. But that's exactly what God is promising. And so when he gathers Israel to attention, calls them to rise to this covenant, it's not just those who are here today. It's those who aren't. Was there... No, not just mountaintops covered with tribes of Israel, but was there someone, were there people above the mountaintops themselves, us, premortal 
Spirit's looking down. I'm making a choice too. And will I renew the covenant once I come to participate in it in mortal life? Verse 29, he then says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Oh, there are mysteries yet to be learned, yet to be taught. And I guess we should be patient and let the Lord teach us when he thinks we're ready. Those secret things belong to him. But what belongs to us? The things he's already revealed. And he has revealed the best possible way of living. I pray that we're willing to live that way. So, chapter 30, here is your ultimate choice. Verse 1, it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee. You'll see evidence of both. Thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul. When you're scattered, remember God. Remember his law. Repent. Return to him. And he will return you to this land of promise. In verse 3, that then the Lord thy God will turn. Again, there's that key word for repentance. He will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee. And will return and gather thee from all nations, whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. This gathering is based on our repentance and the Lord's compassion. Thus we need to cry repentance to all people and remind them of the compassion of Christ, the promises God has made to bring us home. In verse 4, If any of thine be driven out unto the outmost parts of heaven, as far as you could possibly imagine, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. It's impossible to be scattered beyond the redeeming reach of Jesus Christ. As far as you're thrown, he will come to fetch you. You ever thrown a, a ball so far the dog just wouldn't go fetch it? <laughs> we have dogs like that. Uh, and well, great, now I'm playing fetch with myself. I threw the ball too far. Nothing is so far away from God that he will not fetch you home. He says in verse 11, for this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that thou shouldst say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? You didn't have to go to heaven to get this law. Heaven came down to you to give it. And if he's willing to come nigh, to be that close, to teach you how to come close to him, then no matter how far you wander, these lost sheep will be within earshot of the voice of the Good Shepherd. We just have to help them heed it. In verse 13, Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldst say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that, ye, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. So not only is it not up in heaven where you have to find it there, it's not in some far-flung land. It's right here. In fact, it's in you. It is you. And once the law becomes who you are and how you view the world, 
This doesn't feel like it's some, oh, I don't know, foreign usurpation, some dictator that's coming in telling me to do what I don't want to do. It's no, this is my own personal culture. It's who I am. It's who I want to be. It's the best version of myself. Then verse 19, are we ready to set this in stone? I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. This is a precursor to Joshua's great, choose you this day whom you shall serve. Or Elijah's famous, how long halt ye between two opinions. This is the, the preview of that pep rally at the Valley of Decision between Ebal and Gerizim, as Moses reminds them, it's right in front of your face. I have set before thee blessings and curses, obedience and disobedience, light and darkness, take your pick. It's all right here. Zion, Babylon, Israel, Egypt. It all boils down to this, life and death. Please choose life. It cannot be forced upon you. And he who is the way, the truth, and the life, choose him, and you will find life in this world abundantly and life in the next world that is eternal. Are you ready to make this decision? Caught between Bethel and I, east of Eden, will I continue falling or will I come back to the tree of life? How will I spend my life and what path will I take? Verse 20, he then says, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God and that thou mayest obey his voice and that thou mayest cleave unto him for he is thy life and the length of thy days. Do you see how he connects obedience with love once again? This is the Shema. This is the first great commandment. Just love God and prove it by obeying him. See in the law gifts of his love and cleave to him. It's your life. I love how he puts that. This isn't a life that qualifies you to be with God. This is the very type of life that God lives. So this isn't life to come to Christ. This is life in Christ. And, and there's no better way to live. Chapter 31, he then gives them his final charge. Moses says to the people in verse 2, I am 120 years old this day. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, now 40 years in the wilderness with you. I can no more go out and come in. Also, the Lord has said unto me, thou shalt not go over this Jordan. So <laughs> I think I'd still have enough energy to go if he let me. But yeah, I'm, I'm getting old. And I do trust God's justice here. So this is the end of the line for me. Can you go in without me? You ever been really worried about what life's going to look like when, when this particular mentor is released or moves on? 
Can I do this on my own? Can I do it with other leaders? Well, Moses is encouraging them. Verse 3, the Lord thy God, he will go over before thee. That's first and foremost. And second, Joshua, he shall go over before thee as the Lord hath said. So you're in good hands. Joshua is so well prepared. He fought Amalekites when I was up on the mountaintop. He was up on Sinai with me. He knows what a 40-day fast feels like too. Oh, he's been wise and courageous and understanding and is known of you. I hope the Lord is known of you too, because those will be your leaders moving forward. In verse 6, Moses continues, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Now that was Moses speaking to Israel. Be strong and of a good courage. Then he turns to Joshua, his successor, and called unto him, and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of a good courage. Same exact language. For thou must go with the people unto the land which the Lord has sworn unto their fathers to give them. Thou shalt cause them to inherit it. The people will need to be strong and of a good courage to follow you, and you will need to be equally strong and of a good courage to lead them. You're all in this together. God will be the one leading you all. Verse 8, And the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee, he will be with thee, he will not fail thee, neither forsake thee, fear not, neither be dismayed. Joshua, it isn't about you. Yes, you'll need all the strength and courage you can get, but really you'll need faith because it's about God. I learned that at the burning bush 40 years ago. I didn't think I could do it. And you know what? I was right. But God told me it wasn't me, it was him. And he was right about that too. As long as God is with you, nothing can stand in your way. We've got 40 years of evidence. He then says to the Levites, uh, commands them to reread this law every seven years at the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be a reminder of your time in the wilderness as you're out in a booth outside, a tent, so to speak, remembering the 40 years we, let, we dwelt in tabernacles in the wilderness. And just like that time ended with me giving you the law, let that time every seven years end with a reminder. How often do we reread Scripture? How often do we go back to covenants made in order to make them covenants kept? Every seven years they will do it. God then tells Moses to bring Joshua to the tabernacle of the congregation so that he, God, can give Joshua his own charge. It's like, Moses, great. Can I do this myself real quick? Okay, I'm gonna, you got to wean, we got to wean Joshua off of you. So let me start the process. In verse 15, And the Lord appeared in the tabernacle in a pillar of a cloud, and the pillar of the cloud stood over the door of the tabernacle. God is trying to make this as obvious as he can that he is part of this transition, part of this succession process. He did the same with Joseph and Brigham back in 1844. Then an odd thing happens. God kind of pulls Moses aside and says, By the way, uh, great job with Deuteronomy. Unfortunately, not even this is going to work. The people are going to rebel. They're going to murmur. They're going to fall into idolatry. And everything that you've been warning them about for the last 30 chapters, sorry to break it to you. Okay? Uh, you know what they're like. I know what they're like. We've got to be on the same page here. And then he says this, verse 19, 
Now therefore write ye this song for you, and teach it the children of Israel, put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. You see, there's something about songs that are different than sermons. And for the last 30 chapters, there's been a sermon. Uh, 31, God makes this pivot, and 32 is going to be the song. And this is the song that he wants Moses to teach the people of Israel, to put it in their mouths. Why? Because 21, it shall come to pass when many evils and troubles are befallen them, they bring it upon themselves, that this song shall testify against them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed. You see, songs are more easily remembered. Uh, have you noticed that you might have forgotten a lot of what you learned in primary, but you still know those primary songs? And you've probably forgotten a lot of the talks you've uh, heard or even given in church, but it's amazing how much the hymns can stick in our heads. There is something about rhyme and poetry and music, and we don't get tired of singing the same songs over and over again. Sometimes we get tired of saying the same things. There's the magic of music. And here it's God recognizing, you know what, Moses? You did an incredible job, but I know what you're up against. It's called human nature. Uh, and, and trying to help the people overcome that. When I told them about being scattered, it's going to happen. But when I told them about being gathered, that's going to happen too. And the gospel... And its calls to repentance will literally strike a chord with them because it will sound like the songs of Zion. This will be the song of redeeming love. And even in their scattered position or their scattered state, when they've forgotten so much, these chords of memory will be struck and they'll end up singing their way back home. So write the song. And that's what we see in Deuteronomy 32. Like I said, there's bookends across this wilderness wandering. We saw the song of Miriam in Exodus, right after they crossed the Red Sea. Well, now we get the song of Moses right before they crossed the Jordan River. So beautiful. And to see the mountain and mountain as bookends, to see the stones and stones, to see the first law and the second law, the first song and the second song. This is all coming full circle. Are we ready? Come in full circle, whip around and build some momentum to cross the river and enter the promised land. Here's your song. And I'm only going to sing to you, actually speak to you, the first few verses. Verse 1, give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. There he is calling heaven and earth as witnesses, just like Isaiah will do in the future, just like he did in the previous chapter. Verse 2, my doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, as the showers upon the grass. Doesn't it sound like poetry, sound like song? He's repeating lyrics, and it's rain, not rivers. It's dew that is distilling upon them. There's the doctrine just starting to make sense. I don't even understand why. It's just beginning to click. It's beginning to crystallize. And to, to feel that, to understand that, even in this far country, I, I'm a stranger here, and I want to go home. 
how do I change? Where do I turn? In verse 3, because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Oh, give God the credit. Let people know about him. Publish it, ascribe it, blog it, post it, share it. How else are we going to strike these tuning forks in hopes that it will resonate with people in need of redemption? And verse 4, he is the rock, the one that water will come forth if you strike it. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he, and may we be just and right with him. The song continues, focusing verse after verse on the strength of God and the weakness of humanity. And somehow between those two, God is going to gather us back to him to bring out his strength from our weakness, if we'll only let him. In essence, the book of Deuteronomy ends there. Moses is done. He has given his final sermon and his final song in hopes that it will echo long through the generations of Israel. But before he leaves them, oh, this father of the faithful wants to give one last father's blessing. I mentioned this when we ended Genesis, that in the second to last chapter of Genesis, J uh, Jacob gives patriarchal blessings. In a very literal case, he was their patriarch, their father. He gives father's blessings to his sons. And in the second to last chapter of Deuteronomy, we're here there now, Deuteronomy 33, Moses will do likewise. And he'll take leaders of the 12 tribes and give them each a patriarchal blessing of sorts. I wish that we knew more about our own tribal lineages and the blessings that are attached thereto based on what we see here in Deuteronomy 33, but it's hard. Uh, it's hard to see exact parallels and connections. I'll suggest a few possibilities. But Deuteronomy 33 are these tribal blessings. It's another bookend, right? We got Genesis 49 on the front end and now Deuteronomy 33 on the back end. Verse 6 is Reuben's. Let Reuben live and not die, and let not his men be few. Now that's a, a beautiful addendum to what we saw back in Genesis 49 when it was said that Reuben thou art as unstable as water because you defiled your father's bed. Yikes, that blessing felt more like a curse. Well, here it feels definitely like a blessing. And I'm grateful that people can change. And things that might have come across as harsh at one point, we've changed and we've softened and God wants us to live and not die. He wants to multiply us and our blessings instead of our curses. In verse 7, this is the blessing of Judah. And he said, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him unto his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and be thou an help to him from his enemies. Remember, Judah will be the leadership tribe, the kingly tribe, and to, to need, leaders need all the heavenly help they can get. And here that help will be sufficient. Your hands will be enough. Solomon offers a similar prayer and receives a similar promise. And he, as a member of the tribe of Judah, seems to be deserving of that. 
in verse 8 of Levi, he said, Let thy thummim and thy urim be with thy holy one. For the Levites, urim and thummim, yeah, the high priest is wearing them beneath the, the breastplate of judgment. Priesthood requires revelation. And for each of us in our callings to serve as members of the house of Israel, I hope we have our Urim and Thummim handy also. In verse 12 of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, and the Lord shall cover him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. Are we, like Benjamin, covered by the atonement of Christ all the day long? Are we there between his shoulders as he picked us up like a nursing father to carry us home? Are we willing to do that, this youngest of the tribes of Israel? Do we still see ourselves as, as young? Are we childlike? For of such is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 13 of Joseph, he said, Blessed of the Lord be his land for the precious things of heaven, for the dew, for the deep that coucheth beneath. This is that same tribe of Joseph that would be so fruitful that it would grow over the wall. There you see Manasseh through Lehi coming to the new world. You see... Ephraimites being gathered into the kingdom first so that they can then spread and bring the rest of the family home. One more phrase, though, about Joseph. Verse 17, his glory is like the firstling of his bullock and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. There's the, the oxen again. With them, he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim. They are the thousands of Manasseh. Next time you go to the temple, the place where God places his name, and go to a baptistry, look down at those oxen. I don't know which one is Ephraim and Manasseh. They, any one of them could. In fact, all of them collectively bear the same burden on their backs. And that burden is the blessing of baptism. It's being made clean and whole and taught faith in Christ and repentance of sin and a way to make covenants with him. And as those oxen look out in all directions, ready to bring the burden to the people and then do what? Gather the rest of the people home? Look closely at the head of those oxen and what do each of them have? Horns. And to see that in verse 17, with their horns, they will push the people together. A horn is the cattle prod that cattle get to wear themselves. And to think of what we're doing as house of Israel to spread across the earth and gather people home. Horns, like the horns on the altar, are a great symbol of strength, of authority. And that's what we've been given, the authority of God to gather scattered Israel home. So let's get after it. In verse 18 of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in thy going out. And Issachar, in thy tents. So Zebulun's going out, Issachar seems to be remaining in. And I think there's power there in recognizing, regardless of tribal inheritance, gifts that bring you, that are outward and gifts that are inward. Extrovert gifts and introvert gifts, maybe we could call them. Uh, gifts of proclaiming the gospel, there's outward. Gifts of perfecting the saints, there's inward. And so whether you're in the tents or out among the people, develop the gifts that would be necessary to help them. 
in verse 20 of Gad, he said, Blessed be he that enlargeth Gad. So this isn't just serving others, but being willing to be served by others so that they can be blessed. He's blessing those that enlarge Gad. Interesting. And I'm amazed by people who have the humility to ask for help and give others blessings in the process. In verse 20 of Dan, he said, Dan is a, is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full with the blessings of the Lord, possess thou the west and the south. Those ones seem to be geographical blessings. Dan will leap from Bashan, Naphtali in the west and the south. It is interesting, though, the spiritual blessings that grow out of our geography. And where you grew up and the experiences you've had and times you've moved and the people you've met. I wonder if that's the places you've served. I mean, it's, it's, that's part of the blessings of God as well. Then 24 of Asher, he said, Let Asher be blessed with children. Let him be acceptable to his brethren and let him dip his foot in oil. Thy shoes shall be iron and brass. And as thy days, shall, so shall thy strength be. Oh, there's blessings of posterity, blessings of physical strength. And those are blessings we can all seek from God as well. In verse 27, he's finished these blessings and says, The eternal God, this is for all of you now, is thy refuge. There's the covering above. And underneath are the everlasting arms is bearing you up from below. I love that imagery of God above and God below and on our right hand and our left hand and before us and our rearward and angels round about us to bear us up. When people sometimes say, I've hit rock bottom, I just smile and think that's the best place you could be. Because you're finally back in contact with the rock that's always been beneath you. Here, it's said even more personably, underneath are the everlasting arms. You'll never fall through his fingers. You can't slip through the cracks because there are none. This rock is as broad as eternity, Enoch said, so you can't even roll off the edge. And as far as you might wander, God will send his servants to find you so they can help you come home. No wonder he ends in verse 29. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, who is the sword of thy excellency. God is our sword and our shield. He's our offense and our defense. What's not to be happy about? The book then ends with Deuteronomy 34, verse 1, Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, that is over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. North to south, he sees it all. And in verse 4, the Lord says to him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. As I've said before, those words seem to apply to us as well. Never quite within our reach, but God giving us a glimpse of the glories he has awaiting us. So, hike Pisgah, ascend Nebo, and look. 
See all that God has promised you. Things he will give you, whether in this life or in the life to come. And here Moses bridges the gap between them in a miraculous way. In verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. But don't jump to conclusions too quickly. No man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. Now, on the one hand, that seems to be a fitting end for Moses because he has left markers everywhere. In Egypt, in Midian, now here in Moab, wishing that he could cross the Jordan River, but pointing the people towards it for themselves. He is a, a man of miracles, and in a way, it seems fitting that his death would be a mystery and a miracle, because his birth was too, as was the life that, <laughs> that unfolded in between. This miracle baby, oh, Amram and Yocheved and their willingness to put life on the line, and a child that was meant to die, lived. And here, 120 years later, when there should have been death, there's only life. He set before them life and death and asked them to choose life. Will God let Moses choose life as well? We see it most clearly in the Book of Mormon, where they're, the Nephites are dealing with the aftermath of Alma's mission. And it says in Alma 45:19, the saying went abroad in the church that he, Alma, was taken up by the Spirit, or buried by the hand of the Lord, even as Moses. But behold, the Scripture saith that the Lord took Moses unto himself, and we suppose that he has also received Alma in the Spirit unto himself. Therefore, for this cause, we know nothing concerning his death and burial. Ah, we're seeing now what really happened to Moses. And evidently, what happened to Alma the Younger. What, we see, what we'll see later with Elijah. There seem to be those that have missions yet to perform. And so their death is a bit of a miracle themselves in order to prepare them for that mission. I joked before that Moses actually does get to cross the Jordan River. He does get to come into the Promised Land. It's just going to be a millennium away when he comes to the Mount of Transfiguration. He even gets to come to the, to the Americas when he appears to Joseph and Oliver in the Kirtland Temple. And to see those who were preserved for just such a purpose. I don't know what Alma's is. That'll be interesting to find out at some point later in life, I hope. But to see the end of Moses as a miracle, an end that was never an ending. I think that points us forward to Christ as well. So what do we, what do we see at the close of this book then? Verse 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. Well, died, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. Well, we said a little while ago that I'm feeling a little worn down, I'm a little tired, but according to this, oh no, he could have kept going. He could have climbed more mountains. He could have crossed more seas. Uh, but he's left that to us. In a way, this reminds me of Christ, who spoke, cried out with a loud voice from the cross. And if you're about to die from crucifixion, there is no strength to cry loudly. No, Jesus gave up the ghost. 
It wasn't taken from him. And in a similar way here, Moses, this is a different kind of passing. Then Israel mourns for Moses 30 days, as they had with Aaron before him. And verse 9, Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. There's the passing of the baton, the passing of the mantle, and it fits beautifully on Joshua's shoulders. We'll see that next week. And then verse 10, which some people have used as evidence that Moses couldn't possibly have written the books of Moses, because here he talks about his own passing, and, and he says something here that meek Moses never would have said. Well, I have no problem with Joshua or someone else, including these last few verses, since true, indeed, Moses couldn't have written about his own passing. But that doesn't disqualify his authorship of, of the rest of these books. Whatever mosaic fingerprints are upon them, mingled with whatever fingerprints came before or after. But this is the verse, verse 10, I love it. There arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. This is irreplaceable Moses, which of course he wouldn't have written if he was the meekest man of all. Ah, We'll see next week Joshua try to fill those shoes. And that's a tough intro for a successor, but a fitting conclusion for a life like like Moses's. We've spent months with Moses, and it's sad to see him go here, but fitting to let him have these final words and this final sermon and final echoing song to try to convince us that it's worth it to follow God. As I've pondered Deuteronomy, in fact, I've been studying it all week, and then I reread it, or at least re-skimmed it. I read it in depth all week, but then skimmed over the whole thing again before sitting down to film. Because I was trying to get an overarching view, a 30,000-foot view down below of what is God trying to do here. That's when I realized it's one long persuasive appeal to keep the commandments. And while I'm at it, to always remember him and to be willing to become his people. It's that sacrament prayer. It's amazing to see the sacrament from 30,000 feet. In a way, there is a verse in the Doctrine and Covenants that sums this whole thing up. Because of all these different rhetorical appeals and how God is trying to help them decide for themselves to obey. It's in section 43, verse 25 where a plaintive Lord says, How oft have I called upon you? And he, let me name the ways. By the mouth of my servants. He'll do, he did that through Moses. By the ministering of angels. That happened all along the way. By mine own voice. There's the cloud of smoke, pillar of fire. By the voice of thunderings and by the voice of lightnings. You saw that at the top Mount Sinai by the voice of tempests, and by the voice of earthquakes and great hailstorms, and by the voice of famines and pestilences of every kind. How's that to summarize the exodus from Egypt with its plagues? By the great sound of a trump, they're blowing them loudly, clearly. By the voice of judgment, we saw that throughout Deuteronomy. 
and by the voice of mercy all the day long, by the voice of glory and honor and the riches of eternal life, and would have saved you with an everlasting salvation, but ye would not. In a way, that was Exodus, and that first generation would not. And they wander, wander, die, wander, died. It's happening again here. Will you wander or will you move forward with faith? I have tried everything I can to call you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, to bring you across the river into a land I've been promising your ancestors for centuries. That's the book of Deuteronomy. God appealed to their personal experience, reviewing their past to remind them of the results of obedience and disobedience. Choice is yours. He appealed to their sense of superiority. It's what lifts you up above other nations, makes you more civilized, more just. He appealed to their ambition, their hopes of reward. Keeping the commandments will bring you promised blessings more than you could possibly imagine. And if not, he appealed to their fear of punishment. Keeping the commandments will protect you from cursings and consequence. There's both carrot and stick mingled in one in Deuteronomy. God appealed to their spirit of gratitude. Will you keep the commandments because of all I have done for you? He appealed to their wisdom, their understanding. Keeping the commandments is the wisest thing to do. He even appealed perhaps to some reverse psychology there at the end warning Moses, yeah, it's not going to work. <laughs> They're not going to keep the commandments. Oh yeah, yes I will. And some did. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God appeals to their sense of identity and uniqueness. Keeping the commandments is what makes you different. That's a huge part of Deuteronomy as well. I brought you out of Egypt for this. I carried you through the wilderness for this. I'm bringing you into the promised land for this. To be different. To be mine. Which brings us to his ultimate appeals he appealed to their sense of the sacred. Do you have any idea who I am? Who it is that's asking you to live this way? And he appealed to their noblest emotion of all, love. The pure love of God. I love you. Will you love me enough to keep my commandments? My friends, I am moved by Deuteronomy. It really is clear to see that a loving Father wants to come as close to us as we are willing. Nephi would have understood Deuteronomy perfectly. There is a thread of obedience that winds and twists through his entire life, entire ministry, and practically every word he wrote. Go back to see how he ends his writings. His final words at the end of 2 Nephi 33. Here is a man who knows he must obey. But more than must, he's one who wants to. Because he's come to know God and knows the dealings of that God who has created them. In our case, 
I pray that we will come to know a Christ who is nigh unto us. One who is willing to condescend to our level of living. One who is willing to face the justice so he can administer mercy. And when you feel his love, how can we not want to reciprocate that relationship? How can we not want to obey? <laughs>